quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good morning. Turmoil in Israel, huh? Yeah, it's all over the front pages, too, here yeah, today. It's very busy. It's going to be our big story, our lead story today. Hello, everyone. You see us. Caitlin and I are here. Poppy is off, so we're going to get started with the five things to know for this Monday. It's March 27th, 2023. Mass protests erupting in Israel, as we just said. It happened overnight. Tens of thousands taking to the streets after Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu fired his defense chief for opposing a plan to reform the country's judicial system. The big question, what will the PM do now? Also, Mississippi is cleaning up from a devastating tornado that hit over the weekend. More than two dozen people were killed. President Biden has now declared it a major disaster zone. Also this morning, we're tracking Hollywood star Jonathan Majors has been released without bail in New York after being accused of domestic violence. The actor's attorney says that he's innocent and claims the accuser has now recanted her story. We'll have more on that. And new overnight, Silicon Valley Bank has a buyer. Finally, the FDIC announcing that First Citizens Bank has agreed to purchase SVB's remaining assets and loans. And the men's Final Four is set. FAU, San Diego State, Miami, and UConn. Unfortunately, no Alabama, but it is the first time since 2011 that a one seed has not made the Final Four. No Alabama? It's hard to believe it. All right, seated this morning starts right now. Good morning. It was a very busy weekend. We're going to talk all about Caitlin uh, and no, her Swifty going to the concert. Oh, we'll I thought just... you were going to say Alabama. No, no, no. We're going to talk about that, about going to see Taylor Swift. But we have some serious stuff to start with. We're going to begin with turmoil in Israel. Look at that. This is, and this is just a small part of it. There are massive protests rocking that country right now. And now a huge nationwide strike is paralyzing Israel. The prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, is under immense and mounting pressure to back down on his controversial plan to overhaul the court system there. Tens of thousands of protesters blocking a highway in Tel Aviv after Netanyahu fired his own defense minister who opposed the plan. Look at that and listen to this. And as you can see, they were blasted with water cannons. And now Israel's largest union is calling for a historic strike. We are seeing it bring the country to a standstill this morning. All departing flights, you can see all the passengers here, have been halted at Israel's main airport. Workers at the country's biggest port have also joined the strike. Even the McDonald's there are closing all of its restaurants in support of what's happening. Of course, Israel is one of the United States' closest allies, and the White House is tracking all of this closely. You can see President Biden here returning to the White House with the First Lady on Sunday night. The White House put out a statement saying they are deeply concerned about the political crisis we're watching unfold in Israel. President Biden did not answer questions we should note as he was returning to Washington. The world, though, is watching, and they are waiting to see what Prime Minister Netanyahu is going to do. He's spoken to Piers Morgan for an interview, and he defended his plan to weaken 
the Supreme Court. He insisted he is not trying to destroy democracy. That's what you've heard for those who support this judicial reform. Netanyahu told Piers Morgan, quote, you have a situation where 15 unelected members of the Supreme Court effectively govern Israel. They can decide things that affect our military, our economy, our foreign relations, our battle with terrorism. Is that right? Is that democratic? No, it's not democratic. We have team coverage this morning. Uh, Elliot, journalist Elliot Gottkeen is at the airport where flights have come to a complete stop. We're going to check in with him in a moment if you can see he's on that plane there. CNN's Hadass Gold is in Jerusalem. Hadass, I think the big question is what the prime minister is going to do here. I know there were reports he was going to speak this morning. Now it's not so clear uh, if he will. What are you seeing and hearing on the ground? Well, we have heard nothing from the prime minister so far. And meantime, the country has come to a screeching halt. And instead, as you can see here, people are coming out into the streets once again to protest. I'm right outside of the Supreme Court where protesters have just been streaming in all morning. Caitlin, I've never seen this country like this. I've never seen such a huge, massive strike affecting every possible business. As you noted, even the McDonald's here are shutting down. The major ports are shutting down. And as Elliot is experiencing right now in the airport, there are no takeoffs. Planes are still landing, but there are no takeoffs. Caitlin, the last time the airport was shut down was during war. In 2021, when the Israeli military was trading fire with Gaza, with, with militants, Hamas and militants in Gaza, rockets were in the air. That's usually what shuts down the airport. But instead, now it's the protest over this massive judicial overhaul. It all started uh, on Saturday night when the defense minister, a member of Benjamin Netanyahu's own party, dared to give a speech calling for the reforms to be halted because he said the divisiveness was called causing a real and credible threat to Israel's security. 24 hours later, Benjamin Netanyahu announced he was fired from his post. No announcement on who a replacement will be. And then immediately, there were spontaneous protests, as you saw in the street. And while we've had 12 weeks now of regular protests, last night felt different. Last night felt angrier. Last night felt even a little bit more violent. And now I have to tell you, Kaylin, the chorus of people calling for a halt, the chorus of business leader, the number of people who are supporting these reforms still is growing smaller by the hour. Kaylin. We mentioned Hadassah's time. We mentioned that the all of the businesses that are closing the airport. I mean, the economic impact is just immeasurable right now. Is the prime minister feeling the pressure to back down? There are several reports that he will come out soon and potentially announce a halt to the legislation. But so far, we have not heard a single word, a single tweet from him about this. We have held, we, he has been completely mum. Meanwhile, as you can see around me, the entire country is essentially come to a halt, is in chaos. People are on the streets. Businesses have shut down. People don't know if the airport is going to be open tomorrow. While there are reports that we are starting to see some of the more right-wing members of his government also agreeing to a halt, so far, absolutely nothing. Nothing from the prime minister. Don. All right. Abbas in Jerusalem. We'll continue to check in with her. Let's also bring in journalist Elliot Gottkine, who is on a plane right now at the Ben Gurion airport where he has been waiting for nearly an hour. I mean, Elliot, this is kind of just remarkable to hear the widespread impact of what these protests are having. You, What time were you supposed to take off? You know, what have you heard uh, from the airport? Do you feel, still think you'll be able to today? Well, Caitlin, as you can see, we are actually moving now on this flight that is bound for Rome. We were due to take off 90 minutes ago. When we got to the airport, everything seemed normal. Then word came out that this strike had been called, but yet we were still told to start queuing up to board 
this plane. Then a short while later, the workers there told everyone to go and sit down because no flights were taking off. And then much to everyone's surprise, uh, they then about half an hour, 45 minutes later said, OK, we're boarding. We boarded as per normal. We sat on the tarmac for about half an hour and now we're moving. And the captain very much seems to be thinking that we are going to be taking off. But I've not seen other flights taking off. And there's no guarantee that we aren't just trying to get into position so that when flights are able to take off, we'll be among the first in line. Caitlin? It's just remarkable to see that. Elliot, let us know if you do take off. We'll continue to track this and just the widespread impact that this is having. Thank you. Michaela, they said Elliot was moving. Are they just moving on the tarmac or are they... Elliot, is Elliot still there? Elliot, are you still there? I'm still here. We're still on are the you, tarmac. Are you taxiing or what I'm is going still here. on? We're still on the tarmac. We're still moving. <laughs> we are taxiing, but uh, as I say, the, the captain... Uh, everyone was kind of, you know, a bit, getting a bit frustrated here on this plane that we weren't taking off. Why were we boarding if we're not going to take off? And then the captain told everyone to sit down and said, we're going to go right now. And we've been taxiing. We seem to be getting into position for uh, the runway. Uh, but as I said, until we're actually in the air, I can't tell you for sure that we are going to be taking off. Although, of course, I am very grateful at this point that my son is uh, operating as our cameraman as we as we hope to jet off for our family holiday. Yeah. I was just wondering if, if the airport is shut down and things aren't moving, why are you taxiing? But uh, we'll continue to check back with you. Thank you very much. We appreciate that. You can see the turmoil that's happening there. It's also turmoil happening here of a different kind. There are more storms are on the way this morning for the southeast. Torrential rain in Alabama and Georgia overnight, leading to widespread flood threats today. More than 20 million people are under severe storm threats. This comes after powerful tornadoes over the weekend killed 26 people. At least 20 confirmed tornadoes, tornadoes hit Alabama, Tennessee, and Mississippi. The worst hit, Rolling Fork, Mississippi, leaving many in a state of shock. Flower shop, beauty shop, barber, law offices just down the street are all gone. We're just trying to get what we can out of the rubble. <laughs> it's uh, pretty shocking. Yeah, it is pretty shocking. Let's turn out a scene. It's Nick Valencia joining us live from Rolling Fork. Nick, how are people doing today? What are they doing? Yeah, good morning, Don. They're picking up the pieces here and grieving after the loss of more than two dozen people. And scenes like this are what's left behind after that EF4 tornado ripped through this portion of the Mississippi Delta. Just take a look at the strength of these winds picking up cars like this, wedging it between vehicles. And it's not very much of this town that's left. My first time coming back since the storm. What do you think? Just blessed to be alive. As the massive EF4 tornado headed towards his Rolling Fork apartment, Antoine Jones, a local police officer, took cover with his girlfriend in their bathroom tub. The bathtub left from over us, and the storm actually placed us down where the bathtub was originally. I mean, you have to think that this is maybe the end for you. You're up in the air, you're floating around. Yes, sir. We, we, we thought we would thought we were going to die. We thought we were going to die. Miraculously, both survived with just a few scratches. Then Jones, who was born and raised in Rolling Fork, put on his uniform and went to work. Once I realized that I was okay, it was time to get into the first responder mode. A few blocks away, we meet Amanda Kelly and her boyfriend, Scotty. In February, she says she was diagnosed with spinocerebellar ataxia, a Parkinson's-like condition that affects her ability to walk and talk. And now this. If it was not for Scotty and God, I wouldn't be here. There is no doubt. 
because I wouldn't have been able to get from my room to the hallway by myself and I wouldn't have been able to hold myself down. You were getting blown away? I was literally getting sucked up. We uh, both were. Kelly lost both her walkers in the tornado, along with so much else. But like many here in Rolling Fork, their material possessions are meaningless to them, given the fact they survived when so many didn't. The house went to shaking, and I said, yeah, it's really serious this time. For 65-year-old Elijah Washington, this is the third tornado he survived. This one, he says, was by far the worst. Through a smile, he says he's lucky. In this devastated mobile home park, where eyewitnesses tell CNN several people died, Washington says he was one of the few of his neighbors who had home insurance. I heard somebody moan and said a stick through somebody's head, a couple of legs broke, you know, and stuff like that. So. And here you are with just a scratch on your finger. Yeah, a scratch on my finger and walking around. I walked out of here last night. It's just amazing. Amazing is one word for it. Antoine Jones would rather see his story of survival as a sign from God, and he says he's going to listen. That was your girlfriend that you were in the tub with? Yes, sir. So you got to get married now. You know that, right? Yes, sir. It's coming. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. I can't let it go. And many people are holding each other extra close this morning after what they went through. Last night, another round of severe weather was like salt in the wounds here, Don. And looking at scenes like this, you could tell it's going to take a long time before things get back to normal. Don? Just devastating. Nick Valencia on the ground for us in Rolling Fork. Thank you, Nick. Next hour, the vice mayor of Rolling Fork, Mississippi, LaDonna Sias, will join us live. The latest on recovery efforts. We'll talk about that. Also here in New York, the grand jury that's investigating former President Trump and hush money payments that were made to Stormy Daniels is set to meet again today. It's still unclear if and when the jury may vote on what would be a historic indictment, if that is what they choose to pursue. The district attorney here in Manhattan, Alvin Bragg, is accusing House Republicans of interfering with his investigation. Meanwhile, they're demanding that he testify about the probe. Bragg says it's not appropriate, though, for him to do that because he's a local prosecutor and they say it's a local case. But House Republicans, not just any House Republicans, three chairmen are refusing to back down. We haven't seen charges. We haven't seen evidence. What if District Attorney yeah. Bragg comes forward with an indictment, it's with evidence, and proof that Donald Trump did commit these crimes, you, you still think he shouldn't be charged? Well, we believe that he should come explain to us exactly what he's investigating because at the end of the day this is a presidential candidate i don't believe that bragg would be doing this if donald trump were not running for president we should note comer there the chairman of the house oversight committee declined to say if they would subpoena bragg if they wanted that cnn's kara scannell has been following this case though carol you know we were waiting to see what was going to happen last week on thursday and friday with the grand jury what are we expecting from them today well, good morning, Caitlin. The grand jury is scheduled to meet today, and it's possible that they will hear from at least one witness. You know, this is a secretive process, but it has a megawatt spotlight on it right now. The grand jury, though, does not have any kind of immediate deadline. They sit until June, so they can take as long or as short as they want in hearing evidence in this case, as we wait also for the district attorney, Alvin Bragg, to decide whether to move forward with what would be historic charges against a former president. So in this void, though, the former President Trump has been filling it by 
by continuing to unleash verbal assaults against Bragg, calling him over the weekend a psychopath. The House Republicans, as you mentioned, are also refusing to back down. They're asking Bragg to come in and testify. They're also saying that they might consider legislation to stop a local or state prosecutor from pursuing an investigation into a current or former president. Now, Bragg, for his part, is telling Congress that their interference here is unprecedented. He's saying it could hinder, disrupt, or undermine this investigation. And yesterday, nearly 200 former federal prosecutors issued a statement saying that these attempts to intimidate Bragg um, are, are bad and that they're saying that it's for democracy, it's fundamental for there to be prosecutorial independence. Caitlin? Yeah, I mean, there have been big questions. That was one thing that Jake pressed Comer on yesterday, which is, you know, Congress getting involved and what a local prosecutor is doing. But, you know, there's also new CNN reporting that Trump's team, and something we've heard them bring up many times, is the John Edwards case. Of course, he was accused of soliciting, I believe it was about a million dollars to hide an affair. The question, I think, is, is that actually a, a comparison that is, that really measures up to this? I mean, there are... Yeah, I mean, there are some similarities, but also some differences. And what the Trump team is focusing on when they look at the John Edwards case is that he was acquitted on some of these charges, and then the judge declared a mistrial and others where the jury couldn't reach a verdict. The Department of Justice decided not to move forward. That was a federal case. This is a local prosecutor. It's unclear exactly what type of charge Bragg might move forward with if he does decide to bring a case. And if if there may or may not be a parallel there. But the key thing that the Trump team is pointing to here that they look as a parallel to Edwards is that they're arguing that this was this payment was made to avoid embarrassment and it was not made primarily for the campaign. Caitlin? Yeah, we'll wait to see what those charges even look like if they come down. Kara Scannell, I know you've been tracking all of this. Thank you. And new overnight, the FDIC says First Citizens Bank officially has bought Silicon Valley Bank, known as SVB, and all, its, all of its deposits and loans. The deal includes about $72 billion of assets. Today, SVB's former branches will open as First Citizens branches. SVB's failure was the largest in the U.S. since the 2008 financial crisis. A warning to the West. Vladimir Putin and prolonging outrage with a provoking outrage, I should say, with a plan to deploy tactical nuclear weapons in Belarus. How the world is responding. We're live in Moscow. And seven people are now dead in Pennsylvania after an explosion at a candy factory. The video here is just stunning. We have new details on what happened ahead. More seen in this morning to come after the break. This morning, Russian President Vladimir Putin says he is planning to put tactical nuclear weapons in Belarus. Those weapons are for the battlefield not long-range attacks. It comes as the West steps up military support for Ukraine. The U.S. says it sees no sign of an imminent risk. CNN's Matthew Chance is live for us in Moscow this morning. Hello to you, Matthew. What is Putin up to here? What is the global response to this announcement been? Yeah, well, I mean, he's definitely rattling his nuclear saber once again, as we, we've got used to. And he does that, you know, uh, of course, to send a message to the rest of the world that, you know, uh, even though the advances on the battlefield in Ukraine uh, are pretty stagnant, he still has a, a very powerful backup. It sends that message of potency as well to the Russian people that want to see uh, in some way that, 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 that Russia has the initiative when it comes to this uh, this conflict. But I, I think, you know, that's really fallen on 
you know, not deaf ears, but in the West, in the United States, they've played it down, saying it doesn't really change uh, their nuclear preparedness stance. They don't see any sign of Putin moving towards uh, using a nuclear weapon. The Europeans, perhaps understandably because they're closer, have said that this is a threat to European security and have called on Belarus to push back and to say they don't want the weapons. I think, though, it's more of a case of Putin sending these weapons to Belarus, not giving it to them. They'll be going with Russian troops who command and control them as a way of sort of Russia tightening its grip over that ally of Belarus right next door. Um, basically, they've got a stranglehold around the country. They prop up the government there. And this is only going to increase that hold over Belarus. All right. Matthew Chance, thank you very much for that. And joining us now is retired U.S. Army Colonel Liam Collins, who served as an executive officer for the U.S. Senior Defense Advisor to Ukraine from 2016 to the 2018. He also visited Ukraine last month for research. Good morning, Colonel Collins, and thank you for being here this morning. On this news that Putin says he's planning to do this, do you think he's actually going to follow through with this, or do you think it's more more bluffing is what you know the administration seems to be implying at this moment? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, this is primarily a bluff, right? Since the start of the conflict, Putin has repeatedly hinted at the potential nu nuclear escalation, and it's really just a tactic really to dissuade the West from its support to Ukraine, which hasn't worked, or just distract his own populace that the war is not going well. So I think it's really just kind of the simply the latest in this ongoing narrative by Putin. So I, I want to ask you, it's Don, it, it was said that um, the U.S. military that it didn't believe that it was a sign of an imminent risk. But if Russia were to use tactical nuclear weapons, how would that work? And is Ukraine prepared for that? Yeah, I mean, first of all, uh, Russia is not going to employ a tactical nuclear weapon or, or the likelihood is infinitesimally small, right? It, it's... Uh, Putin doesn't want to know what the repercussions of that would be. No states have used it since World War II. Uh, so it seems extremely, extremely small. If they did employ nuclear weapons, right, they could employ them just as well from Russian territory, right, from a bomber flown from Russia or this missile system that, that, that we heard reporting on is they're considering transferring over to Belarus. But that would offer them no tactical value because they can range most of Ukraine from Russia or Russian occupied territory. So it really makes no sense to transport these weapon systems or refit, you know, nuclear weapons to Belarus because it really offers them nothing. What's the significance, though, of this coming out of Russia after Chinese President Xi Jinping visited there? And the, you know, the idea and the notion that they didn't say this before his visit, but they're now saying it uh, since he's left. Yeah, I mean, I think that's just a, a, just more of a coincidence more than anything else. That, right? China doesn't provide them anything nuclear capable, capable or anything. I, I think it's really just a, a, a you know circumstances that just happens to be at the same time. I don't think the two events are, are related at all. all. Right, Colonel Collins, we appreciate you bringing us your expertise this morning. Thanks so much. Thank you. A Delta Airlines passenger now under arrest after getting off the plane by opening the emergency door. What more we're learning, plus this. Upset after upset after upset. Florida Atlantic out of Conference USA takes out Kansas State. I mean, what a weekend. It was a historic win for Florida Atlantic University. The Final Four is now set. There is not a top seed in sight. The favorites to win, the upsets. We're going to break it all down for you in case you missed the games. Did you That's shed next. a little tear this weekend? Oh, Close. <laughs> Close. <laughs> Close. 
The death toll is rising this morning after an explosion and massive fire leveled a candy factory Friday outside of Philadelphia. Seven people have been confirmed dead as officials say that the recovery efforts have now ended. But the authorities are still investigating the cause of the blast that you see here on your screen. The mayor says that three buildings near the factory are going to be condemned as a precaution. The city is planning a candlelight vigil as well for the lives who were lost. Okay, get this. A Delta Airlines passenger was taken into custody for allegedly opening one of the plane's emergency exit doors and deploying the emergency slide. It happened as the plane was preparing for a takeoff from Los Angeles to Seattle. Delta says the flight returned to the gate and the passengers were put on another plane. The FAA is investigating the incident. All right, also, the Final Four is set. It might surprise you. Not exactly what we thought this was going to look like when March Madness kicked off. Miami and San Diego State are going to join UConn and Florida Atlantic for a shot at the national title in Houston. That starts one week from today, next weekend, we should note. CNN Sports' Coy Wire is joining us live. Coy, these were not the names people were expecting to see exactly. My dad and I were talking about this last night. You know, the fact that no one seeds are going to be playing in the final four are you surprised by this yeah no alabama for you no texas for me what's going on there's no one two (laughs) or three seed in the final four is that don over there playing his world's smallest (laughs) violin hey look look at these teams florida atlantic miami and san diego state what they're in the final four for the first time ever uconn's the only one with experience San Diego State was up two over Creighton with about 30 seconds to go, but Creighton's Baylor Shireman steals the inbound pass and ties the game. Six seconds to go now. Here's the moment. Aztecs Darion Trammell looking for the win, but Creighton's called for the foul. Just 1.2 seconds left. Trammell misses the shot, but the pressure's on for the senior. He locks in and nails his second one. It's the game winner. Creighton's last chance goes flying out of reach. Game over, y'all. Trammell played in front of fewer than 1,000 fans at Seattle University last year. Now he's sending the Aztecs to their first ever Final Four. Here he is. It's all about believing in yourself. Uh, I feel like I put in the work. I had nothing to be nervous about. Um, I think the game, it's just, it's just a game. Uh, I'm doing this for my family. I'm doing this for people back home. My grandpa. My brother who I lost, I'm just doing it for them. Now how about the U? Miami down by as many as 13 to Texas in the second half, but comes roaring back. Tied at 79 with a minute to go. Texas called for the foul. Boxing out for the rebound, but look at this. This sends Miami to the line. They make both free throws to take the lead, 81-79. And then that Canes defense. They step up. They get the steal and seal the deal. Comeback complete. They take out the one-seed Houston, now two-seed Texas. And now 73-year-old coach Jim Lirianega looking like Don after he buys a new tie. Look out, baby. Don't hurt yourself, big man. Miami headed to the Final Four for the first time. Time ever. And Iowa's Caitlin Clark rewriting record books against Louisville, leading the Hawkeyes to their first Final Four in 30 years. She is savage. She's the front runner for National Player of the Year. 41 points, 10 rebounds, 12 assists. First player ever to record a 40 point triple double in tournament history. And uh, the other game yesterday, LSU Don into the final four. Your Tigers, they're drawing rings on their fingers with Sharpie envisioning those national championships. 
How you feeling about that, big man? Manifesting. <laughs> They're manifesting. That's what we do in Louisiana. We bring things to life just by manifesting. Can I say I'm obsessed? I'm obsessed with LSU's uh, the women's team's head coach. She is amazing. Her outfits at every game. If you haven't looked at it, people need to look it up. But that Miami Kim men's Loki, game. Yes. We were watching that last night. I was on my flight back to New York. Everyone on the plane was watching it. The fact that Miami was able to mount that comeback was incredible. And it happened like that. I mean, it looked like it was out of control for Texas, but here comes the Hurricanes and just making madness <laughs> with this of March. And yeah, you get jealous of me because I get to dance. Ow. I get to play basketball. Don't stop. Get it. Get hey. it. Uh, I mean, yeah. that's impressive. 73 years old. That's what it's all I about. Know. And we will be in Houston next weekend for uh, for the Final Four, so we'll be having some more fun. Yep. Yeah. a little bit. He's just a year younger yeah. than you, Coy. Wow. So. <laughs> Can't wait to see what happens in Houston. All right, Coy, thank you so much. Coy, you see you soon. So uh, we need to tell you that we're still watching this. Take a look at this. These nationwide protests rocking Israel. Moments ago, takeoffs resumed at the nation's main airport, Ben-Gurion. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu under pressure to back off of his controversial plan to overhaul the court system. What will he do next? We are live in Jerusalem for you. I want to get back now to Israel moments ago to look at those protests, by the way. I mean, that is, this is Jerusalem, live pictures. We also want to tell you that moments ago, takeoffs at uh, the Israel's airport resumed. This comes as these massive protests have rocked the country over the prime minister's controversial plan to overhaul the court system. Let's bring in CNN's Hadas Gold live in Jerusalem. Uh, Hadas, it's very loud. It's very boisterous where you are. Can you remind our viewers why these protests are such a big deal? Well, this judicial overhaul would be the biggest change to Israel's judiciary since its founding. At its core, it would give the Israeli politicians, the parliament, so essentially whatever party is in power, immense power over the Supreme Court. Everything from how the judges are selected to most notably even the ability to overturn Supreme Court decisions. Now, there have been calls for reforms in the past, and even people who say that they do support some sort of reform say that the way this is being done, being pushed through at such speed without the without input from the opposition parties is just not the way to do it. And especially the divisiveness that we've seen in the streets. More than 12 weeks now, hundreds of thousands of Israelis taking to the streets in protest. And especially in the last few weeks, especially in the last few days, it seems as though major figures from every uh, every single aspect of Israeli society, from the security stuff, even the Minister of Defense, the bank of the, the governor of the Bank of Israel, the high-profile figures in high-tech, former prime ministers are all coming out against the way these reforms are being handled, saying, at the very least, things need to be frozen in place. Stop the legislative process for, for, for a few weeks. Let the talks at the Israeli president's house commence. But so far, we have not yet heard from Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. There were reports he was supposed to give a speech a few hours ago, announcing that he was going to freeze the legislation. But yet, it's been hours since those reports came out. As we've seen, the airport came to a standstill. The ports have come to a standstill. Even McDonald's has shut down joining this general strike. This country is at a standstill, and still we are not hearing anything from the Prime Minister. Don. Hadas Gol in Jerusalem for us. Hadas, thank you very much. It's going to be interesting to see if the prime minister does come out. He's well, supposed to. And it's already almost 2 p.m. And I, what we had seen was, obviously, there's a lot of people calling for him to back off of this, but the far right part of the coalition is saying, don't back down just because of the protest. This could change the judicial system there, the legislative system there, like, drastically if it does happen. We'll see. What, we're going to continue to follow. We have Hadas there and uh, CNN teams, of course.
The meantime, Apple CEO Tim Cook praising his company's relationship with China despite geopolitical tensions between Beijing and the U.S. Plus, the actor Jonathan Majors has been arrested here in New York in a domestic dispute. We'll tell you about the charges he's facing, the evidence that his attorneys claim proves his innocence. Apple CEO Tim Cook spoke at a government-organized forum in China where he said that Apple and China grew together over the last 30 years, saying that they have a symbiotic relationship. This is Cook's first trip to China, actually, since the zero-COVID restrictions that ravaged supply chains and took a bite out of Apple's profits happened. Meanwhile, this comes as the House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, is now promising to move forward with legislation that would ban TikTok, citing security concerns with China. This is in a tweet just a few hours ago. Joining us now is CNN media analyst and Axios reporter Sarah Fisher. Sarah, I mean, it's obviously not a surprise that Tim Cook is praising China, given how much Apple obviously relies on them. But it, it is interesting to see one of the biggest executives in the U.S. navigating this relationship at a time when the tensions between the United States and Chinese governments are so incredibly high. Yeah, it definitely puts him between a rock and a hard spot, Caitlin. But just to give you an example of how much China is valuable to Apple, if you take a look at last quarter, about 20 percent of their sales came from China. Now, that's just the sales output. You also have the labor and manufacturing resources in China. The vast majority of Apple products that you and I use today are manufactured there. So China is a critical market for Apple. But you're right. There's a huge uh, you know, shift right now happening between the U.S. and China on on the software side, because of the Chinese expectations around content moderation, censorship, propaganda, we're running into real tensions around apps that you know leverage content, things like TikTok. That does not seem to hold as well when it comes to the argument around labor and manufacturing. And that's why someone like Tim Cook can go to Apple, Tim can praise that relationship, but someone like Sho Chu, the CEO of TikTok, is going to get grilled here in the U.S. over TikTok's presence. Mm. This is coming when he is admitting, Elon Musk is admitting uh, that that Twitter is now worth half of what he paid for it, about $20 billion less. I mean, what gives here? Is he in trouble? It's not looking very good, Don. Yes. So an internal email from Elon Musk to employees suggested that they could get stock grants valuing the company at around $20 billion. That's less than half of what he purchased it for, which was $44 billion. I think the big picture here is that social media is going through a reckoning here in the U.S. You have Twitter, whose value has been cut in half. You have TikTok, which is getting potentially banned. Meta, which is formerly Facebook, is going through a revamp of its whole business model, and the entire sector is being hit with layoffs. What was once one of the most lucrative and sexy industries in our country has now been turned upside down on its head. And the traditional tech companies, going again back to Apple, are the ones that look to be faring better. What is this social media reckoning? What's going on, Sarah? Is there any way to, is it like the economy? You know, we don't have the tools to measure it or is it, it was this needed? Did they need to sort of rejigger and refigure out and, try, and, and figure out what's happening with social media? Well, it's a sector that's highly dependent on advertising, Don. And when the economy fell out, these social media darlings finally realized that they needed to diversify their businesses a little bit. And now what's happening is they're taking measures that make them look more like blue chip companies. Mm -hmm. You know, for so long, these were the sexiest stocks that you could own. They were the fastest growing. And now they're starting to look a little bit more like traditional firms. They're focusing more on profit. They're being more measured about the number of people that they're hiring. But I do think from a big picture perspective, a lot of the reckoning that we're having here in the U.S around the First Amendment, around free speech, is also having an impact on these companies. Yeah. Interesting.
Thank you so much, Sarah. I think that's something we need to really delve into. What is this sort of reckoning that's happening with social media companies? Well, and for TikTok itself, I mean, after the CEO appeared on Capitol Hill last week, Mike Gallagher, the Republican congressman from Wisconsin, said it's only more likely they're going to take legislative action now that he appeared. Obviously, not what he was going for there. Sarah, thank you so much. Also this morning, we're going to track how more storms are on the way for the southeast. The latest threats are coming just days after powerful tornadoes killed 26 people We're on the ground tracking the devastation as its extent is fully being uncovered in Rolling Fork, Mississippi, next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back, everyone. Actor Jonathan Majors facing the fallout this morning after his arrest in an alleged domestic dispute. Police say the victim had minor injuries to her head and neck, and a statement Majors' attorney is saying this. Jonathan Majors is completely innocent and is provably the victim of an altercation with a woman he knows. All the evidence proves that Mr. Majors is entirely innocent and did not assault her whatsoever. Unfortunately, this incident came about because this woman was having an emotional crisis for which she was taken to the hospital yesterday. We expect these charges to be dropped soon. The U.S. Army is even pulling its ads featuring Majors. Uh, It's pulling them off of the air. So joining us now, the host of Boston Globe Today, Shagun Odubalowu. Good morning to you, Shagun. So uh, you point out that this will matter most in the court of public opinion. What does this do to his career? He's now, you know, he's in major movies. They're now pulling ads, at least one ad, the U.S. Army, um, Mm -hmm. off of the air. Regardless of the legal outcome, what does this mean? Well, Don, first, uh, thank you for having me. Unfortunately, it's under these types of circumstances. You know, for too long, women weren't heard, let alone believed. And so when an allegation like this comes in, our reaction now is to listen and try as much as possible to distance ourselves from the entity. And in this case, Jonathan Majors, uh, we don't have all of the facts in. Right. But you see what the advertisers, the army are doing because the allegations are so serious. And I think that because of where we were before and where we currently are now, where any story credible or until proven otherwise, we have to give it the the weight that it deserves. So the army has pulled ads. Remember, Jonathan Majors is in two of the highest grossing films of this year, Creed Three and Ant-Man and the Wasp. So his career was on a tremendous upswing. And for this to come and potentially derail it, we, you know, it's going to be a a fight, you know, no pun intended because he was in Creed, but it's going to be a fight to get it back on track. I am asking and hoping that we will be patient. Let all of the facts come in because the court of public opinion is very different than the court of law. And if you go online, you are already hearing all types of stories, you know, that uh, describe him as an angel and stories that describe him as the devil. So we need to be patient. We need to let all of the facts come in as best they can. But a tragedy has happened. A woman was either assaulted for whatever reason. She was hospitalized. An accusation was made. He was arrested. He was released. His lawyer is claiming that they have evidence that will prove his innocence. And we should let all of that come in. We were too quick with knee-jerk reactions when it was Johnny Depp and Amber Heard And Johnny Depp was pulled from movie franchises until the court trial and tapes came in. So if there is evidence that proves Jonathan Majors did not do this, then let it come out and let his name be clean. 
but I still say this court of public opinion, they don't play by any rules. Stay off Twitter, stay off Instagram, because what you're going to get is conjecture. Yeah. And we in the news business, we deal with facts. Yeah. And we are waiting to see, you know, what this looks like and to hear more from from his legal team and what they've been saying, because they say there is that evidence. So I do want to, though, talk about something else that happened last night on a lighter note. This is something a lot of people stayed up late mm -hmm. for, which is the premiere of Succession. Season four, the Royal family is back. We got to see it last week because we went to the premiere here in New York, and I was obsessed with the first episode. But I wonder what your main takeaways were since this is the kickoff for the final season. Well, first, thank you for that humble brag that you got to see it a week early. All right. Pick that name up that you just dropped. OK, you know, it's, it's nice to have privilege. But the reason that we love this family so much is because they make us feel better about ourselves because we're not as slimy and we're not as schmarmy and we're not as dysfunctional as this family, or at least we hope we're not right like we're not as neurotic as shiv we are not as calculating as logan roy we're not you know we're not as messed up as the brothers we are <laughs> well like i said we we think that we're not but it is it is it is great theater it is theater of the absurd but it's like watching a car crash you can't help but slow down and then you feel that much better that i wasn't in that crash oh my gosh i'm not as bad as this like i guess it's like watching reality tv and watching people debase themselves and then you get to say oh my god look at them doing that i would never do that and you get to eat your popcorn and enjoy it yeah, I can't wait to see what the evolution of what happens with Tom this season. We will stay tuned. Shagoon, thank you so much for joining us this morning. My pleasure. Y'all be safe out there. Have a good week. You too. We will. And CNN This Morning continues right now. Protests engulfing the streets of Israel over Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's plan to weaken the Supreme Court. He fired a key minister who opposed the move. This morning, will Netanyahu push forward with the overhaul? The mood is terrible. It feels as if the Prime Minister has lost control. It feels as if this country is going down a very dangerous road. Like no notice. We didn't know what was happening. Mississippi cleaning up from a devastating tornado. At least 26 people are dead. There's very little of this community that was untouched by the storm. My city is gone, but we're resilient and we're going to come back. The grand jury in New York is set to reconvene as District Attorney Alvin Bragg weighs indicting a former president for the first time in American history. Prosecutorial misconduct is their new tool. We believe this is a political stunt by Mr. Bragg. It's not for me to tell a district attorney who to charge or what charges to bring. What Putin said is that Russia is planning to station a number of tactical nuclear weapons in Belarus. Ukraine has reacted angrily with the foreign ministry here calling for an extraordinary meeting of the UN Security Council. We've in fact seen no indication that he has any intention to use nuclear weapons, period, inside Ukraine. We can't allow that to be a cause for delaying critical weapons system that we need to deliver to the Ukrainians. March Madness has been wilder than ever. San Diego State, Miami, UConn, the Owls of Florida Atlantic. They are headed to the Final Four. I'm sure there were people doubted we could do it, but we never doubted for a minute.
Good morning. As you're waking up today, Israel has been engulfed in turmoil. There's a live look right now in Jerusalem as massive protests are rocking the country. Now a huge nationwide strike is grinding Israel to a halt. The Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is under intense pressure to back down from his controversial plan to overhaul the nation's court system. Yesterday, tens of thousands of protesters blocked a highway in Tel Aviv after Netanyahu fired his own defense minister for coming out publicly and criticizing the plan, saying that he opposed it. Those protesters were blasted with water cannons as they were blocking that major highway. Look at all of that and listen to it. It's unbelievable. Israel's largest union has called for a historic strike. Flights have now resumed Israel's at Israel's main airport after they were grounded for hours. With a live shot at the top of the last hour of someone just getting into place and taking off. Workers at the country's biggest seaports have joined the strike. Even McDonald's is closing all of its restaurants in solidarity there. Israel is one of America's closest allies, and the White House says it is deeply concerned about the political crisis. So you see the president and the first lady returning to Washington last night. The world is watching, and they are waiting to see what Netanyahu will do. We were expecting to hear from him earlier this morning, but that did not happen. Perhaps it will happen a little bit later on. So let's check in now with CNN's Haras Gold. Uh, she's among the crowd in Jerusalem, and she joins us now by phone. Any sign of, is, is Netanyahu going to speak? Is this forcing him to change his position? Yeah, guys, I'm joining you by phone because there are so many people here at this protest outside of the Supreme Court that our signal for our camera is just so weak just because of just the masses of people. As you noted, the country has ground to essentially a uh, screeching halt because of this massive general strike. This is the largest general strike I think ever announced in Israeli history, even affecting the airport. And the last time the airport was closed this way was during war in 2021 when rockets were flying in the air. But today it's come to a halt over these protests against this massive judicial overhaul that I'll remind everyone essentially would allow the Israeli parliament to overturn Supreme Court decisions with a simple majority. That's according to the legislation as it's currently being proposed. Now, all of this started Saturday night when the defense minister, the first minister in Netanyahu's own government, came to come out against this reform, calling for a halt. He was severely fired 24 hours later. That sparked massive street protests. So you guys were showing videos of that, of the police using water cannons on the protesters in the middle of the night on the main highway. And now we're just waiting to hear from the prime minister, from Benjamin Netanyahu himself. So far, he has not made any sort of statement about this. There are reports that he was going to call for a halt, make a big speech to call for a free suit legislation. So far, we have heard absolutely nothing from him or from the prime minister's office. Guys. I mean, just watching this play out and how this is impacting daily life in Israel. I mean, with the strikes, with what we've saw at the airport earlier, though flights have now resumed, the fact that this is even reaching to places like McDonald's, I mean, blocking the highway, the pressure is so intense on the prime minister here. I mean, what is the expectation of, of what he's going to do? Well, I mean, the pressure for him to at least announce for a free legislation is absolutely massive. And now we're even hearing of threats of violence from pro-Netanyahu groups. Some of these are far-right-wing extremist groups. Some of them have vowed to come out on the streets later tonight. That is incredibly worrying because this is something the Israeli uh, president had been warning about now for weeks. 
He is warning that there could be bloodshed on the streets between Israelis. He is warning about a civil war. And so there is an incredible amount of pressure on Benjamin Netanyahu, even hearing from other members of his own government, saying they will support Netanyahu if he announces a freeze. There are some Israeli media reports that he is currently in consultations with members of his right-wing government. These are the people who used to be the fringe politicians in Israeli politics. Now they are sitting ministers. There are some reports that some of them are still holdouts and want him to push through with this, with this legislation. But I honestly cannot see how he could stand it. Just the way the state of Israel, as I'm seeing it today, I have never seen anything like this. Wow. Never seen anything like this. Hadass Gold, thank you for being there. Again, Hadass noted she can't actually appear on camera because given the size of the protest that you're seeing on your screen right there, it is blocking CNN's camera signal from being able to go live. We will continue to check back, though, with those live updates you're seeing on the ground. We're going to have Aaron David Miller on just a little bit later on. He's a former Middle East negotiator and for the U.S. State Department. It's going to be interesting to hear what he has to say about that. In the meantime, back here at home, more than 20 million people across the southeast are under threat of severe weather. Today comes after a deadly tornado outbreak tore through Mississippi and Alabama, killing at least 26 people. Our Nick Valencia is live in the hard-hit town of Rolling Rock, Mississippi, this morning, where there is devastation. That's what you're seeing this morning, I'm sure, Nick. Yeah, good morning, Don. There is grief here, a lot of it. Uh, more than two dozen people were killed by that powerful EF4 tornado that ripped through this portion of the Mississippi Delta on Friday night. And just look at the force of the winds here, the power of this storm that came through here, wedging this car, picking it up, turning it on its side and wedging it right between this vehicle. Just behind that, there's a semi that's crashed into a tree. The roof of this home just entirely gone. This community, uh, a lot of, many of them here uh, don't have home insurance. Many of them here are poor. It's a predominantly black portion of the Mississippi Delta. But what's really striking to us in our time here in the last several days is just even those who have lost their homes chipped in to help out people who were worse off. Uh, LaDonna Sias is the vice mayor of uh, Rolling Fork, Mississippi. We'll hear more from her in just a little bit. She was telling us over the weekend that her home was just destroyed, and yet she was out over the weekend delivering hot meals to her constituents. We also met Antoine Jones. He's a hometown, uh, you know, born and raised here in Rolling Fork. He's been on the police force for the last five years. He was in a bathtub with his girlfriend, picked up, literally floating in the air, crashed down, survived with just a few scratches, put on his uniform, and then went to work. It's stories like that that are really standing out here in this community. Last night, more salt in the wounds is another round of severe weather through here. Many people here uh, holding each other extra close. And you could tell scenes like this, it's going to be a long time before things get back to normal here, Don. Nick Valencia in Rolling Fork this morning. Thank you, Nick. Appreciate that. Also new overnight, First Citizens Bank has now officially purchased Silicon Valley Bank after SVB collapsed. And the largest U.S. bank failure since the 2008 financial crisis First Citizens Bank is now going to take on all deposits and loans of SVB. That means it will operate the 17 branches that previously said SVB. They will now be First Citizens Bank. CNN's Christine Romans joins us now. She's been tracking all of this. Good morning. Good morning. And, you know, this was the big question of when a purchase like this would happen. Yep. What does it mean for people who were formerly customers of SVB? It means when they wake up this morning, they'll have a new bank name, First Citizens Bank. And everything stays the same for now while First Citizens from Raleigh, North Carolina, integrates this bank. Um, look, it's really interesting here because um, First Citizens says that it has these innovation hubs and they'll be leveraging Silicon Valley's strength in 
private equity, venture capital, and tech services. So there is some overlap here that makes sense for both of these companies. Um, it's also super interesting because tomorrow you're going to get a hearing at the Senate about what happened with SVB. And May 1st, we'll get the first look at what the Federal Reserve's own internal investigation into what happened at Silicon Valley Bank. So we're learning more about what brought this bank to its knees, even as we find a new buyer here. I think this is good news for the stability of the American banking system, no question. This is the healthy way to do it. When you have a weak bank, you have a stronger bank that buys it. Uh, so we'll closely be watching to see what happens next. But you have stability in banks really around the world. Deutsche Bank is up in Europe. European shares are higher. So there is some feeling that uh, the worst is behind us in terms of the, the banking sector. So this is just the latest in that sort of banking thread here. And it's hard to keep track of the names. So it's First Republic and then SVB and now it's First Citizens. Citizens. That's right. That's right. So, but who cares about the name as long as your money is safe, <laughs> And right? your money is safe. When you go to those, those Silicon Valley banking uh, customers, when they go today, they will have a new name on their bank, but everything should work. Their cards, their, their, their access points, their, their digital banking, all of that will still be working. Great. Yeah. Great. Right. Nice to see you guys. Thank you very much. So let's get back to the turmoil happening in Israel over the government's controversial plan to overhaul the judicial, judicial system there. Aaron David Miller is a former Middle East negotiator for the State Department and the senior fellow at Carnegie Endowment. He spent decades working on American efforts to broker agreements between Israel and its neighbors. Good morning to you, Aaron. We, we appreciate you joining us. Much of Israel is at a standstill right now. The options for Netanyahu at this hour. First of all, Don and Kayla, thanks for having me. Look, we're, we're on terra incognita, unprecedented. We now have a general strike which hasn't occurred, I think, it's since the British mandate uh, period of, the, of this size. Um, we've been waiting for three hours for Mr. Netanyahu, the prime minister, to make an appearance. His justice minister was out earlier, basically saying that he would accept any decision that the prime minister made. And... Um, Mr. Levin, the Justice Minister, is one of the hardest-line opponents of this judicial reform. I'd call it a judicial, a judicial coup, actually. So I think uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, risk-ready, uh, on trial for bribery, fraud, breach of trust, wanted this judicial reform to neuter the court. And I think he may have no choice, given the pressures that we've witnessed, which are extraordinary, basically, at least to push for a delay. Yeah, it's remarkable to hear from the justice minister coming out and saying that, given he, he was part of the architect of all of this. But you know, one thing that I've been thinking of in the bigger picture of this is how much does this have to do, in your view, with Netanyahu himself? Because you can't ignore that all of this is coming as he's fighting his own corruption charges. And part of this new package, the courts would no longer be able to bar politicians who are convicted of crimes from serving in top government jobs. How much do you think this does have to do with his own recent trial? You know, Tip O'Neill's famous as he said that all politics are local. When it comes to Benjamin Netanyahu, particularly given the fact that he's under indictment with a trial in a Jerusalem district court that's now three years and continuing to run, all politics are personal. For him, I think this is existential. And I think it explains the risk readiness, the abandonment of caution and prudence that have characterized so much of Benjamin Netanyahu's career. One step forward, one step back, backward, he really needs this judicial reform. And I think he now has, be, has begun to understand uh, that he's not going to get it. I, I think five elections uh, the Israelis have had in almost four years, driven by the fact that Mr. Netanyahu would not agree to the formation of any government in which he did not have a majority, in large part because of his trial. 
Yeah. Uh, listen, it's, it's not just Gallant. There are at least two more Israeli uh, ministers, both of the, the same party as Netanyahu. They suggested halting this controversial plan uh, as well. The former prime minister, Yair Lapid, uh, called Gallant's uh, dismissal a new low. And I think what, what he's saying is what's happening now. He's, he wrote on Twitter that Netanyahu may be able to fire the minister, but he cannot fire the people of Israel who are standing up to the insanity of the coalition. That appears to be true. You know, Di, it's such a crucial point. And, you know, the, what, what's the takeaway for us? Israel and the U.S. are fundamentally different countries, and it's hard to compare the, the, our circumstances. But, you know, the reality is indictments, impeachments, investigations, all of that notwithstanding, what is happening in the streets of Israel, struggling for what many Israelis believe is the soul of their country, is people power. And it's extraordinary. It may well it may well be one of the takeaways, despite the differences that divide the U.S. and Israel, the type of system we have, largeness and smallness of this country. Um, one takeaway that maybe Americans ought to consider. What do you, Aaron? What do you think is going to happen? I know you don't like to predict things. Do you think he's going to have to back down or at least freeze it for a moment? I don't, you know, Don, and I think uh, the Oracle at Delphi probably couldn't make a prediction right now. But I, I, I think if I had to predict, it just seems to me to be straining the bounds of credulity to the breaking point that he won't push for some sort of delay. The country is on the verge of a crisis. And while there hasn't been violence, that's always a real possibility the longer that this goes on. Yeah. Aaron David Miller, thank you for that. I mean, just the fact that the justice minister is saying that he'll accept whatever Netanyahu decides could be an indication that he may he may back off of it, even if it's temporarily delays it. We'll see. Well, we'll be watching. Former President Trump's legal troubles back in focus this week. The grand jury hearing testimony about his role in a hush money scheme is expected to reconvene today. Where things stand in the investigations next. Also, we're tracking Russian President Putin now claiming that he is planning to move tactical nuclear weapons and deploy them to Belarus. We have the former Trump National Security Advisor John Bolton here to weigh in ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This morning, the Manhattan grand jury in the Trump hush money investigation is expected to reconvene, and it's possible they could hear from an additional witness. That is according to CNN's latest reporting. Now, Trump railed against the investigation during a campaign rally in Waco, Texas this weekend. Afterwards, he told reporters that he thinks the case is being dropped. Didn't give any evidence to back that up. It's still unclear, though, if the grand jury will bring any charges. So joining us now to untangle all of these legal, legal entanglements, the ones facing Donald Trump's in and senior legal analyst, Mr. Ellie Honig. Good morning, Ellie. So let's start with Manhattan here, because there are a lot of them. Uh, the grand jury is back in session today. What should we expect at least this week? Yeah, Don, so many different uh, legal issues swirling around Donald Trump. Now, the grand jury is back in session, 3.1 miles from where we stand right now, down at the courthouse in lower Manhattan, looking at this hush money payment scheme. Of course, this focuses on the $130,000 that Donald Trump paid through Michael Cohen, his attorney at the time, to Stormy Daniels in hush money. Really important to understand. 
Paying hush money is not a crime. So what could the crimes be here that they're potentially looking at? We are in state court here. Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg is in charge of this case. So under New York state law, there's a potential misdemeanor crime here for falsification of business records. The thought would be if they falsely classify these hush money payments as attorney's fees, that could satisfy the misdemeanor. Also, this could become a felony if they falsified those records in order to commit some other second crime. So what could that be? What second crime? It could be a violation of campaign finance laws. Now, to that extent, Donald Trump's team has been saying they may use a defense like the one used by John Edwards. John Edwards was charged federally with a similar offense back related to his 2008 campaign. He was acquitted in the federal courts. The case was then dismissed. He beat the case by arguing the payments were not related to the campaign. They were related to avoiding personal embarrassment. Now, here's what the process is going to be. When Alvin Bragg is done putting his witnesses in the grand jury, he can decide whether to ask the grand jury to vote on an indictment. If they do vote, that will happen quickly. This is not a trial jury where these things take days. If the grand jury votes, it'll be quick. If they do vote, yes, we will have an indictment. That's a sample indictment from another case. But that indictment will be under seal, meaning we won't see it in the public until the time of Donald Trump's arraignment in court. That's typically when these things get unsealed. So there could be a brief period of time here where we yeah. know there's an indictment, but we can't actually see what's in it. Well, and we may hear from Trump once they find yes. out that the indictment has happened. So there's sure. the other side of this where we might, like, just like with the, the search on Mar-a-Lago last... I'm asking something before you go. To, just real quickly, can we go... I, I'm, I'm not understanding the argument with John Edwards. Are they sure. arguing for it to be adjudicated? Because John Edwards was adjudicated, and then he was, and then it, he was acquitted. So why are they making that comparison? It seems like it's doing exactly the opposite of what they want to occur. So John Edwards' defense was these payments were not campaign related. They were I know, related. but he had to go to court. He had to, to go to court, to right. prove that. And so Trump, if he has to go to court and defend himself on a similar campaign finance charge, this would be state instead of federal. You can see that he's gearing up to make a similar But I argument. thought they don't want to go to court. Right, but if he, <laughs> I mean, he can't avoid going to trial on that. That's a trial defense, ultimately. All right, okay. Okay, well, that's what's happening here. We're still going to wait to see what the grand jury does today. There's the other investigation. That is the special counsel's investigation into January 6th and what's happening. Yeah. So We've big- now got this ruling from a federal judge that the people you see there, Mark Meadows, Stephen Miller, Dan Scavino, the others, they basically can't cite executive privilege to not go and testify. That's really significant for someone like Mark Meadows. This is a big deal. You're right, Caitlin, because a federal court rejected executive privilege claims relating to all of these high-level former White House officials, most importantly, Mark Meadows. So that, uh, that ruling came from a U.S. district court. Now, this may be appealed up to the Court of Appeals. I don't think there's any real chance of success here. The courts generally reject executive privilege claims when it comes to a criminal grand jury subpoena. And what this means as a practical matter is that Mark Meadows and all those other people you just saw, they have to testify in front of the grand jury. Now, they can take the Fifth Amendment. Everyone has the right to do that if they want to say their testimony might tend to incriminate them. If they do that, though, prosecutors Jack Smith has a potential counter move. He can immunize them, saying, you have to testify now. We're not going to use your testimony against you. That's not optional, by the way. If they do that, Meadows has to testify. All right, Elihon, a lot of investigations to keep track of. Thank you for doing so clearly. (laughs) We appreciate that. All right. Also this morning, the White House is responding to Russian President Putin's plan. He claims his plan to deploy tactical nuclear weapons to neighboring Belarus. 
far. We have not seen any indication that he's made good on this pledge or moved any nuclear weapons around. Uh, we've in, in fact seen no indication that he has any intention to use nuclear weapons, period, inside Ukraine. We've seen no, nothing that would cause us to change our own strategic deterrent posture. That's John Kirby from the National Security Council. This comes as Putin has escalated his rhetoric several times since he invaded Ukraine. He's warned of the increasing threat of nuclear war. Ukraine believes that these plans show that Russia is not making progress on the battlefield and is instead trying to distract a top Ukrainian advisor tweeting that Putin is admitting he is afraid of losing and all he can do is scare with tactics. Joining us now is former National Security Advisor to former President Trump, John Bolton. Good morning, Ambassador, and thank you for being here. Do you think Putin is bluffing when he makes these comments? Well, I think he's been bluffing when he's uh, tried to rattle the nuclear saber before. Uh, he may not be bluffing here in the sense he may uh, actually move tactical nuclear weapons into Belarus, which is its own separate problem, uh, something I don't think we're paying enough attention to, which is the potential reabsorption of Belarus into Russia. But militarily, even if he did that, it really wouldn't make uh, that much difference, in my view, because of uh, what we know are extensive nuclear uh, supplies, missiles, uh, cruise missiles, drones, uh, and warheads uh, in Kaliningrad, an exclave, a, a piece of Russia that's separated from Russia itself by Lithuania and Poland. Uh, that, that's a place which has long been basically a Russian military facility going back to Soviet Union days. Uh, and it's had missiles there which were actually in violation of the INF Treaty, which the U.S. withdrew from some years back. So the capabilities Russia already has in the Kaliningrad enclave are the ones that, uh, that, that could be most threatening. I don't think uh, the idea of moving some tactical nuclear weapons into Belarus changes that balance. Yeah, we'll see if he actually follows through with that. I also want to ask you about what we are seeing, these remarkable images coming out of Israel this morning and the massive wave of protest against this attempt by the prime minister to overhaul the judicial system. I mean, what do you make of what you're seeing on the ground? Well, I think this is a really an epical clash between the left and the right in Israel. There are huge philosophical differences here. I think it goes beyond... Uh, judicial reform goes beyond Netanyahu himself. The, the one thing I must say I cannot understand uh, is how people believe that Netanyahu's effort to change the judicial nomination process is a threat to democracy. I, I think the way Israel has its judicial nomination set up now is undemocratic. It's, it's, uh, uh, the ju new judges are picked by a panel of existing judges and lawyers. So it's a self-perpetuating uh, oligarchy, uh, unaccountable to elected representatives. It seems to me to be about as far from a democratic way to pick judges as, as you can imagine. Some of the other proposals, I think, are more controversial, would certainly be controversial in our country. But the idea that the judges select their successors, uh, I just think is, is uh, strikes me as fundamentally anti-democratic. Maybe, maybe somebody can explain how it's consistent with democratic theory as we know it in the West as a whole, but, but I, I don't see it. Well, I mean, that's certainly ar the argument you're hearing from Netanyahu himself. He's arguing that with these changes, it aligns them more with, with Western governments. But do you expect that he's going to have to compromise on this given the outrage you're seeing? I mean, it, it, they're shutting down the highways. Planes were temporarily halted from taking off. Stores are closing. Even the justice minister is saying that he would accept whatever decision Netanyahu would make here. That's significant because it could say give him some space to back off of what he was pushing ahead with. 
Well, certainly the speculation in Israel this morning is that that's what, he, what he's going to do, and I, I assume he's going to speak literally almost any minute now, and, and we'll find out. Ambassador Bolton, obviously you worked for former President Trump. We were just talking to Ellie about the investigations that are happening here. You made a comment recently that stood out to me. You said that if they indict and fail to convict Trump here in New York, you think historians will look back and say it helped Trump get reelected? Right. Obviously, right now, everybody's focusing on the potential for the indictment, I, and I fully understand why that is. But I think the more important question uh, is what would be the outcome of a trial if and when we ever get to a trial. If, if Trump is acquitted, all of those who have said this uh, prosecution in New York over Stormy Daniels is political, it's selective uh, prosecution, it's, it's really highly partisan in nature, would be vindicated. And I think that would have enormous political consequences, sadly, all of them favorable for Trump. That, that's why I think there are conspiracy theories on the right. People believe or they worry that the Trumps want Trump, uh, the Democrats want Trump to be the Republican nominee next year because they think he can, they can beat him. So, so having his base stirred up by an unfair prosecution from that perspective is not bad for the Democrats. But I think if Trump were actually convicted in this case, uh, then I think it would be something significantly different, that, that whether it was selective prosecution or not, a jury had found him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. So there, there's a lot to go here. I don't, I don't know of anybody who looks at the plethora of criminal investigations of Trump who doesn't think this one in New York should come last in a long list before it, but it's, uh, it's not under central control. You've got three different prosecutors in three different jurisdictions looking at four different cases, obviously uncoordinated. Yeah, I mean, even Adam Schiff was critical, saying he thought the Justice Department moved too slow on the January 6th investigation with the timing here. But on the attacks that we've seen against the district attorney here in Manhattan, Alvin Bragg, a lot of them led from the comments Trump has made on Truth Social. Do you think he should denounce the rhetoric around Alvin Bragg and what's happened to him and instead, you know, say he should be able to do his job? Well, I, I think Republicans ought to stand up, number one, for the principle of federalism, he, he, even though Alvin Bragg is not the, the, uh, the person I would select as the poster child for that. I just think it's a mistake for federal legislators, federal authorities, to be questioning what's going on in a... Uh, a municipality, in effect, uh, prosecution. The, the defense itself will be able to challenge the indictment if it comes down on many different reasons. This is, this is a state prosecutor investing, investigating conduct that essentially took place in New York before Trump became president. And it may be unfair, it may be a lot of things, but I, I think it's, it, we begin to bend almost to the breaking point uh, principles of federalism that Republican conservatives believe in uh, when they go after Alvin Bragg. Yeah, those Republican chairmen not only not backing off of it, they're doubling down on saying that he needs to come and testify. John Bolton, thank you for joining us this morning. Glad to be with you. The quote is, my city is gone. That's from the mayor of Rolling Fork, Mississippi, after a deadly EF4 tornado completely flattened entire streets of homes. We're going to talk to the vice mayor who lost her own home. That's next. Oh, man, it's devastating down south. More storms hitting Mississippi overnight as the state faces the devastating aftermath of a deadly tornado that hit on Friday, killing at least 25 people. The EF4 
flattened much of the small town of Rolling Fork with homes re forced, just reduced to piles of, of wood and vehicles tossed and destroyed there. The mayor said this city is, his city is gone. So joining us now, Rolling Fork Vice Mayor LaDonna Sias uh, and her own home was destroyed in the tornado. Mayor, I'm so sorry. Thank you, thank you. How are you holding up? Um, we're holding up as best we can uh, based on the circumstances that we're in. Yeah. How do you even begin to recover right now from devastation like this? I'm looking behind you, and this is just a small portion of what happened. Right. It's, it's really hard. Um, it's really hard. You're, you're trying to keep it together um, for yourself and for others. But when you think about what has happened, when you have an opportunity to drive through, walk through, you know, you're looking at neighborhoods where homes have been totally demolished. It's heart-wrenching, it's overwhelming at times. You have your moments, you know, where you break down, but then you have to, you know, get yourself together, get your bootstrap back up, get your feet planted solid, and you got to keep moving on. But at the, the hardest part is having to witness someone that has lost a loved one, and then having to talk to people that were residents here, but have been displaced due to this disaster. Mm -hmm. it, it's hard, it's overwhelming, and it's heart-wrenching. Uh, did you know any of the people who died? Yes, I did. I, um, I'm, I'm actually waiting on a list. I have asked my counterparts, uh, other alderman, and he's actually willing to meet. We're meeting this morning, sometime this morning, he and I, to, I've asked for a, um, a confirmed list. That's what we need, a confirmed list of, of people that were killed during this uh, tornado. So I will be meeting with uh, Alderman Stewart this morning, and so we'll be trying to get a confirmed list of those people that were killed in the tornado. And yeah, I did know quite a few of them. We all did. <laughs> Yeah, it's a close-knit community, I'm sure. Where were you when this happened? Yeah. Um, actually, I was at home. Um, my husband, he was home, and he was constantly telling me, you know, you need to get up, let's get dressed. Um, and by the time I got up and was trying to get dressed, he pushed me in the closet, in his closet, and he was able to close the door. And the minute he closed the door, the force jammed the door, and he was just constantly trying to hold the door so it wouldn't come open. And you could literally hear the house ripping apart. So we were, we just hid in the closet until the sound stopped. And like I said earlier, it appeared to be forever to me. I'm sure it was a small time frame, but it sounded like it was forever. And you, it sounded like a, a tornado, a no, a train. It sounded like a train was coming through. And at that point, he said, it's hitting. And we could hear the pavilion coming apart. We could hear the house coming apart. And when we were able to get out of the closet, um, after the, you know, from unjamming the door, and we walked down the hall, and when I was able to see Highway 61 and all of the lights, I knew then at that point that, that the house was gone, you know? Mm -hmm. So 
the only thing, you know, the closet that we were in. And then we were trapped in the garage because the garage door was jammed and we couldn't get out. And it was, it was terrifying. It was terrifying. When you look around right now, your community, I know you're standing and there, but when you look around, what do you see? Homes that were homes, structures that are totally demolished, totally demolished. Everyone on this street, on this end of the street that we're on, has been, been displaced. I mean, there's nothing here. There's nothing here but a lot of wood, bricks, and rubbish. There's nothing here. Homes have been totally flattened, a lot of limbs down, a large debris, uh, trees pulled up from the ground on top of rooftops and windows broken out, vehicles totally shattered, turned upside down. It's, it's horrible. And, yeah. and where I'm actually standing, this couple that lived here knew them very well. The next family, you know, people lost lives on this street, you know, and, and how can you how can you rebuild or come back from that, you know, from a family? All of the materialistic things can be replaced, but to lose a life, that's unreplaceable. You, you can't replace that. And it's total, it's devastating. It's devastating. Vice Mayor, we're thinking about you. Um, we hope you get the resources that you need. And you guys, please take care of yourselves, okay? Be well. And we appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much. Thank Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Well, uh, you know, no more to say. We'll be right back. We'll be right back. You see images there of airports across the U.S. as millions of Americans are taking their spring breaks. This year's travel rush is expected to go over pre-pandemic levels and top it. The surge in demand has raised concerns, though, because... As this is going on, the industry has continued to struggle with staffing shortages and a number of aviation incidents that we've been tracking recently. CNN's Pete Muntean is live at Reagan Airport outside of Washington, D.C. Pete, I think the big question that a lot of people who are preparing to go on these trips are wanting to know how the industry itself has been preparing for this. Well, Caitlin, the TSA says we're in the middle of the spring break travel peak right now. The FAA anticipates handling 46,000 flights today, even more tomorrow. But travel groups say the numbers could be bigger, and there is already concern beyond just this rush. Spring break travel is soaring back to normal and renewing worry that your flight could be canceled. Meltdowns plagued the FAA in January, Southwest Airlines over the holidays, and industry-wide last summer. The air travel system is under great stress. The Federal Aviation Administration is already warning of a shortage of air traffic controllers that could cause increased delays at New York's three major airports this summer. There, a key air traffic control facility is at only 54% staffing. We're seeing it with delays. We're seeing it with cancellations. And that is leading some travelers to say, you know what, I would travel more 
if we could fix that air travel experience. The latest figures from travel site Hopper show many travelers are concerned about flight disruptions. 20% of Hopper's spring break travelers are buying extra trip protection. That's on top of rising airfare, up 4%, Hopper says, compared to 2019. They were quite pricey this time of year, I guess, due to spring break and due to what's going on in the economy. They go up one day, they go down the next day. Just be diligent, be on point, and when you see that good price you want, hit the button. Even still, industry figures say 158 million Americans will fly for spring break. That's an average of 2.6 million travelers each day. We're expecting this spring break to likely break records for number of travelers who are getting out there and how much they're spending given the huge demand coming out of the pandemic. The top destinations, Las Vegas, Orlando, Phoenix, Los Angeles, and Miami, where the airport says demand is 20% higher than 2019. So high that officials are asking you to show up three hours before a domestic flight instead of the typical two hours. There are very few off-peak times right now for us. We have been the the best alternative to leaving the country since COVID. The top tips from travel experts. Book your tickets now if you have not already. If you pick a day like Tuesday or Wednesday, you could save as much as $150 on airfare, according to Hopper. And also, book the first flight out. That is how you minimize the chances of delays and cancellations. Caitlin? Yes, that is always my policy. You've got to book the first flight because then at least if it gets delayed, you get on the second one. If you're taking that later one, you're always going to get delayed, it feels like. All right, Pete Muntean, thank you so much. Okay, Silicon Valley Bank is the second largest bank failure in U.S. history. It has just been bought. This is a really big development that we're tracking. We'll give you the details of what that means for those customers. All right, take a look at this photo, right? This is a photo of Pope Francis in a puffer jacket. It's going viral. Too bad that it is 100% fake. What does that mean, that it fools so many people? We're going to discuss. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. All right. Did you see this photo over the weekend of Pope Francis rocking a white puffer coat? It went viral, but unfortunately, it's not real. It was actually created using MidJourney, which is an artificial intelligence tool that can generate Shockingly realistic images like this one. Joining us now is Sinead Bovelsch, who is a futurist tech entrepreneur and founder of a startup called Way, or Weekly Advice for Young Entrepreneurs. She's here to weigh in on just how viral this photo went. And Sinead, thank you for being here. I saw this picture on Twitter over the weekend. I saw people were responding to it. You know, it's not real, but it looked pretty realistic. And I think the thing it, it raises concerns about is, you know, how soon before we're just drowning in these deep fake images that aren't real? Right. Yeah, I think that it went so viral, not just because it was it was funny to some people, but because most people couldn't tell that it was fake. So in term, you know, we've known for years that AI generated imagery, it presents quite a looming threat on, on democracy and on societies, you know, a world where we can't distinguish what's real and what's fake. And what this weekend's viral images show of the Pope is that that, that world is here, that world in which images, video may no longer be synonymous with the truth. Uh, and you know, there's many social implications for this, uh, but mostly how accessible this technology has become to anybody with a smartphone. Uh, it's we're moments away from just being, you know, swimming in a sea of information that we can't really distinguish what's real and what's not. Yeah. Yeah, that is frightening. Well, and remember those images of Trump that went viral of him getting arrested? They weren't obviously real, but some people thought they were real. Yeah. So how? Well, then how? Even even. Um, 
What is it, Chrissy Teigen, who thought it was real? A lot of people were fooled by it. So is there, what do we do then? How do we safeguard against this? And how do we know what's real and what's not, Sinead? Right. So I will say that there isn't, unfortunately, a single solution. There isn't a switch that's going to make all of this go away. Uh, and it is going to be a cat and mouse game with trying to keep up with the technology to be able to flag things as, as fake. Uh, but there is a multi-stakeholder approach we can take to try to minimize these harms. Uh, and this requires tech companies, policymakers, uh, social education, uh, journalists have a role to play in this. So I think on, on the technical front, uh, tech companies that are building these systems also need to equip journalists and newsrooms with the tools to be able to detect AI-generated imagery and content. And maybe we see a new role evolve, AI fact-checkers in newsrooms. Uh, on the policy side of things, uh, maybe we require AI-generating image systems to have a watermark on them, not something that ruins the quality of the image, but something that could be de detected by, by system, so to speak. Uh, and maybe on social media posts, we, we always flag when something is AI-generated. Uh, but we also need a societal conversation as to what do we want the boundaries of this technology to be going forward. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, educating society more broadly on this, educating education in classrooms on this. Yeah, that last part is so crucial for people themselves to be able to spot it, not just the companies. I mean, I don't think anyone on planet Earth would confuse Don or I with astronauts, but our <laughs> producers did have some fun with this and, and put into this to this um, generator Don Lemon as an astronaut, Caitlin Collins as an astronaut. You can see our pictures here. We don't think they look very realistic, but that's, I think, the danger of when you can obviously tell it's fake and when you you can't really tell. And you know what? I think the biggest risk with deep fakes and, and AI-generated content, it's not even that we'll start believing what's not true, what's fake, but that we stop believing what is true. We become so disoriented in all of this information that we lack a shared set of facts, a shared set of truths. And that's the fabric of how a democracy functions. It is just built on a shared story. Mm, yeah. I am a model. That's a, a piece titled... Um, that you wrote in Vogue, I am a model, and I know that artificial intelligence will eventually take my job. Mm. Yikes. It's really something. Sinead, mm. that, your insight is really interesting on this. So thank you. Thanks for joining us this morning on, on such an important topic. Thanks for having me. All right. I mean, the astronaut photos are pretty good. I mean, can we put the astronaut photos up just for a second? I think it looks nothing like either of us, but I mean, come on. It's gone. <laughs> we can't do it. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe after I've been like sunning for a couple of days and hanging out, who knows? Caitlin <laughs> without hair and makeup. No? Yeah. I don't, I mean, I think it kind of looks like me. Not exactly, but I, I can see the resemblance. The scary part is, is <laughs> no, as who, who is that person? That's a, okay, maybe I should do this. That is Don. No, no, that is Lon Demon. <laughs> the scary part is <laughs> as the technology gets better, though, is like when it's more realistic. Yeah. All and right. photos like the Pope. All right, anyway, we'll move on from our astronaut photos. Seen in this morning continues <laughs> right now. Wars can't express what I'm feeling. I'm just broken and I'm not. And knowing that my little boy could have been in if I had picked him up. But I know that they're in heaven. Right now. And I was told that they passed away in each other's arms. Oh, gosh. Oh, 
my goodness, I can't even imagine. And these were nocturnal tornadoes, meaning they happened at, it happened at night, which is the worst because they're often deadlier because people are asleep. The warning systems don't seem to go off as soon and people just don't have time to get in place. And then just in an instant, everything is gone. Yeah. Including loved ones. Good morning, everyone. Sorry to, to uh, come on the air this way, but we appreciate you joining us. Poppy is off today. That man lost both of his parents after a deadly tornado outbreak in the South, killed at least 26 people, and now more than 20 million people across the Southeast are bracing for more severe weather today. The head of FEMA touring the devastated town of Rolling Fork, Mississippi. She's going to join us live. Also, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is facing massive protests and nationwide strikes. The big question that remains this morning is, is he going to back down from what is driving people to the streets? And the feds have found a buyer for Silicon Valley Bank after its stunning collapse set off a banking crisis. We've got a lot to get to this morning, but we're going to start with the massive protests and the turmoil that are engulfing Israel right now. A live look. This is Jerusalem. You can hear folks are speaking there. There are speakers. There are huge demonstrations going on. They continue to rock that country. They want the prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, to back down on his controversial plan to weaken the country's Supreme Court. Now, this was a scene. Check this out. This is earlier at Jerusalem's central bus station where protesters have been arriving from all over Israel to make their voices heard. That's the central bus station. Israel's largest union has launched a nationwide strike that is grinding the country to a standstill. Departing flights were halted for hours at Israel's main airport. Workers at Israel's biggest seaport also joined the strike. Meanwhile, nurses across the country are now set to walk off the job tomorrow. Even McDonald's has closed all of its restaurants in solidarity with the protests that you're seeing. Dozens of local mayors say they're going on a hunger strike because of this. We are waiting to hear from the prime minister. He has not spoken publicly, but he did tweet just a few moments ago, calling on those who are in the streets to, quote, behave responsibly and not to act violently. In an interview that he did with Piers Morgan over the weekend, the prime minister defended his plan. He argued that Israel's Supreme Court is essentially too powerful. He said he is not trying to destroy democracy with these reforms. And the opponents of this judicial reform uh, uh, raise, and I think it's a valid concern, and that is you want to go from one extreme to the center. You don't, you don't want the pendulum to swing to the other mm -hmm. side where the Knesset, our parliament, can nullify any decision of the Supreme Court. And I think that requires a balance. I agree with that. So it has to be in so the So you center. are going to rein back then on this current yes, proposal? Yes, yes. I, just, I said that. CNN's MJ Lee is live at the White House with White House reaction to what's happening. But first, we want to go to Hadass Gold, who is on the ground in Jerusalem. Hadass, we heard from the prime minister in that tweet, you know, warning about violence. Are you seeing that play out on the streets? What is it actually looking like as these are these protests are only getting bigger? Yeah, as you can see behind me, protesters continue to stream down. This is the road that leads down to the Israeli Supreme Court and the Israeli Parliament. We were in the middle of the protesters, but the numbers were so massive that we couldn't get a signal in the middle of it, so we had to come up here. But as you can see, we're probably a good half mile up from the Israeli Parliament at least, and we still are seeing just this massive wave of protesters coming in. Today, the Israeli, the Israeli economy, the country essentially grinding to a halt, this massive strike now, and now there are fears that it could be become violent because we are hearing from some far-right extremist group calling for counter 
protests, and I have to say that the protests we saw in the last 24 hours, especially last night, and last night overnight, especially in Tel Aviv, blocking the highway, going late at night, the Israeli police ended up using water cannons on them. They felt different. They felt angrier, and it does feel as though the tensions are boiling over. And that's why we're hearing from the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu nothing yet, actually, on whether he will call for a halt to this massive judicial overall he's planning. That's what everyone's been waiting on him for. He was supposed to actually give a speech in the morning, and essentially all the Israeli media was saying that he was going to call for an halt, but instead we get this tweet from him saying that he calls on the demonstrators in Jerusalem here on the right and the left to behave responsibly and not to act violently. We are brotherly people. We are also now hearing that Israeli embassies around the world are also going on strike. That means, including the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C., there are no consular services. I have never seen anything like this. The entire country, including the airport from some time, the ports, the nurses, the malls, McDonald's are all on strike as a result of this massive judicial overhaul. Haras, can you talk to us a little bit more about that? Because you mentioned the nurses, you mentioned McDonald's, and we, we saw the, the, um, the main bus station there, not to mention the airports, devastating financially, economically. So what, everyday life, earlier you had trouble even getting on the air because of uh, the internet services being used by so many people uh, to get out their tweets and social media and such. The impact it's having on daily life in Israel. Well, it's been having an impact on daily life now for weeks. I mean, for weeks, on a regular basis, hundreds of thousands of Israelis have been taking to the streets to protest. They've been blocking the highways. They've at, at times even uh, slowed down arrivals for people trying to get to the airport to get out. But today, this is the pinnacle of it. I have never seen uh, an action like this in Israel. I've never even seen wars in Israel shut down a country the way this, this these strikes over this judicial overall has shut down the country. Because Israelis, when there tends to be some sort of security situation or a war, they pride themselves saying life goes on at normal, restaurants are open, the malls will be open, the airport will be open as much as possible. But this is something different, and the divisiveness that is really gripping Israeli society is something that has never been seen before. And I do have to say, the voices that are calling for this judicial overhaul to continue, the legislation to continue as planned, they're growing smaller and smaller. It's not clear why and how, for how much longer Benjamin Netanyahu can stay quiet on this. What is going on? He's likely behind the scenes right now having talks with the far-right ring fringes of his government because without them, there's, he cannot no longer be in power. He can't have a sitting government. Everyone is now waiting to hear from the prime minister who is so far silent now. It is now 3 p.m. local. Uh, the Israeli economy has now been ground to a halt now for hours. Haveskol, we'll continue to check back. Thank you so much. All right, we want to get reaction now from the White House. CNN's MJ Lee is live there tracking this. MJ, obviously, President Biden and Prime Minister Netanyahu spoke, I believe it was March 19th or so, and now they are weighing in on what we've seen play out over the weekend. What are they saying? Yeah, Caitlin, there's no question that the White House, of course, has been watching these developments in Israel really closely, uh, including Prime Minister Netanyahu's decision over the weekend to fire his defense minister. And then, of course, these scenes of the massive protests that have spilled out onto the streets that Hadass has been reporting on all weekend. Uh, the White House said in a statement overnight that it is deeply concerned by these developments. And an NSC spokesperson said that democratic societies are strengthened by checks and balances. And that spokesperson called on his 
Israeli leaders to reach a compromise as quickly as possible. Uh, Caitlin, keep in mind that President Biden and Prime Minister Netanyahu, they have a working and personal relationship that goes back decades. And in recent years, President Biden has watched Prime Minister Netanyahu be removed from power, go through a corruption trial, be reelected to power. And then, of course, in recent weeks, uh, try to get through this overhaul of the judicial system that critics have, of course, said uh, was aimed at basically personally and politically benefiting him. So we are sort of seeing President Biden balance this relationship that he has had with Netanyahu for a long time. And of course, the real concerns that he has about some of the actions that the prime minister is trying to take. Uh, we know that the president expressed these concerns both in public and in private, including in that conversation you mentioned last Sunday. Uh, but of course, in that conversation, too, he was urging the prime minister to get to a resolution quickly. And that, of course, was to no avail. Yeah, and that hasn't happened yet. We'll see if we hear from him and what they do. MJ Lee, thank you. Now, the protests we want to talk about is this morning, the world-famous Louvre Museum in Paris is closed amid nationwide strikes against the government decision to raise the pension age. Hundreds of demonstrators, many carrying flags, gathered outside, blocking the museum entrance. The CGT union block says that its members are taking part in this action with the, with the striking Louvre staff. Last week, protesters descended into the fires and chaos, or protests, I should say, descended into fires and chaos. More than a million people demonstrated across France, including 119,000 in Paris. And we'll continue to track those worldwide developments, but more from the storms in the southeast this morning. Right now, there's heavy rain in Alabama and Georgia overnight. It led to widespread flood threats for at least 20 million people. There was a tornado watch that has been issued for central parts of central Georgia, and that comes after a series of powerful tornadoes killed 26 people over the weekend. The worst of the damage was here in Rolling Fork, Mississippi. It completely leveled entire homes, streets of homes. The before and after images are just stunning. It has decimated the community. We're going to be joined now by the FEMA administrator, Dan Criswell, who is one of the federal officials that toured the damage at Rolling Fork uh, on Sunday. And good morning, and thank you so much for being here. You know, you were there on the ground John's from Louisiana, I'm from Alabama. We know just how devastating these storms can be, and we're, we're looking at it this morning. What did you see uh, on the ground when you were there yesterday? Caitlin, it's always surprising to me when we watch these images on television, and then I get on the ground and I see firsthand just the amount of destruction, um, and it's just always so much worse. And then talking to many of the people in the community of Rolling Fork and hearing their amazing stories of survival, but then how after they came out, they immediately went to check on their neighbors to help other people get out of the rubble. What it really does is it gives me hope and it gives the community hope for how these neighborhoods come together and how communities that are so proud, like Rolling Fork, really bond together to start this recovery process. You know, I was speaking to the vice mayor of Rolling Forks earlier, and then in the beginning of the show, I saw, I think, I'm not sure if you heard this, Miss um, Criswell, but uh, there was a man who said his family members, you know, he lost them in one fell swoop. And I'm just wondering, at this point, do you know yeah. if it's still a search and rescue operation? Is there the possibility at this point of people being found alive? 
Uh, when I was there yesterday, and I would defer to the state for any specifics, but when I was there yesterday, they, there was nobody else that was unaccounted for. And so that tells me that everybody that could have been potentially in this rubble has gotten out of the rubble. And it's just amazing when I talked with the mayor of Rolling Forks and, and the role that he plays and how he's really leading this community. You know, they turn to him and he provides so much inspiration to help this community now start the grieving process, but also the, the mental stress that everybody is going to be going through over the next several days and weeks as they really start to let the gravity of what just happened sink in and start to, to determine what their next steps are going to be. And well, it impacts different communities differently. I mean, if you look at the numbers for Rolling Fork, which is a, a place of about 2,000 people, you know, 21% of people there live below the poverty line. That's higher than the state's average. About 30% of them are in mobile homes. They are going to need a lot of help. Are you committed to making sure that they get everything that they need on the ground there? Absolutely. And with the uh, the major disaster declaration that President Biden granted um, from the governor's request yesterday, that gives FEMA the ability to bring the entire federal family together to support this community. You know, we know that they're going to have a lot of needs and it's a very rural community, right? The next closest town where there is even hotels is like 40 miles away. And so we're going to work really closely with this, uh, the governor and his team on what we can do to provide that safety and that shelter right now now for individuals, partners like the American Red Cross that have already surged a lot of staff in to provide that immediate shelter. And then what we're going to do in the interim while we're helping this community and helping these individuals rebuild their homes. And you're also dealing with this, but you are still dealing with the aftermath of what happened to Hurricane Ian in Florida. And we had Congressman Byron Donalds from Florida, Southwest Florida on last week, and he was critical of FEMA. He said that there are 1,300 people who are homeless in his district. He said FEMA does not want to put trailers because for those people because they are in a flood zone. Can you respond to that? And what are the latest on the efforts with Hurricane Ian in Florida? Yeah, one of the things that we always have to look at is, are we putting people back in harm's way? And whether or not we can put some of our mobile homes in the flood zone is one of the considerations that we have to take. But we were able, because of the impact to those communities in southern Florida and the, the lack of housing in that area, we were able to do a waiver in some parts of it. So we are able to put some of these mobile homes into some of the special flood hazard areas. Uh, we're continuing to work um, in Florida. We have got a full team that is still on the ground, fully engaged with Governor DeSantis's team. And we're continued, uh, continue to work and committed to supporting these communities recover. If you're doing a waiver for some places, though, why would, why would it not be for all of them? Is it accurate that there are 1,300 people who are unable to get this kind of housing because of the lack of a waiver for these flood zones? I don't have the exact number in front of me, but every community is different. Every community has unique needs. Our number one goal is to make sure we're not putting people back in harm's way. But we also want to make sure that we're understanding the unique needs of communities. These disasters affect everybody differently. And so there is no one-size-fits-all approach. We need to approach each community separately and independently, understand what their unique needs are, what their barriers to getting assistance might be so we can create solutions that help that community. All right. FEMA Administrator Dan Criswell, who was in Mississippi yesterday seeing the damage there. Thank you for joining us this morning and for your time. Thank you, Administrator. Good morning and thank you. Thank you.
All right, also this morning we are following the battle that is escalating between top Republican lawmakers and the Manhattan District Attorney who's investigating Trump, Alvin Bragg. Over that investigation, we'll bring you the latest. Meanwhile, Prince Harry is in court this morning as a group of celebrities accuses of a publisher of, quote, abhorrent criminal activity and gross breaches of privacy. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. You see New York there. The grand jury here is investigating former President Trump and the hush money payments that were made to Stormy Daniels. That grand jury is set to meet again today. What remains unclear as of this morning is if and when they may vote on what would be a historic indictment. The Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg has accused House Republicans of interfering with his investigation, or at least trying to, after they demanded that he testify and turn over documents. CNN's Kara Scannell is live outside the courthouse for CNN This Morning. Kara, essentially what everyone wants to know is what we're expecting today. Well, good morning, Caitlin. So the grand jury is set to meet today. They meet in the afternoon. Uh, and we it's possible, we're told, that they may hear from one witness, at least one witness. But all of this is taking place in secret. So we don't have a lot of sense of what exactly is going on behind the scenes. Uh, you know, this process is normally secretive. This is a normal course of events. But there's just such a big spotlight on this as we wait to see whether District Attorney Alvin Bragg will move forward and ask this grand jury to indict the former president. Now, in the void, though, Trump has been unleashing a stream of verbal attacks against the DA over the weekend, saying that he was a degenerative psychopath. Um, House Republicans are also going to the DA's office saying they want Bragg to come testify. Uh, They're also saying that they're considering legislation of whether to pass a law that would prevent a state or local prosecutor like Bragg from investigating a current or former president. Now, Bragg's office has struck back. He has said that this um, is an unprecedented inquiry by Congress, a federal body, into a state and local um, a state and local investigation. Um, he's in, we've also seen over the weekend nearly 200 former prosecutors um, coming forward, denouncing the attacks on Bragg and saying that, you know, for democracy to function, there should be an independent prosecution. Caitlin, Don? Yeah, and notable to hear Trump's attorney, Joe Tacopina, saying over the weekend that those tweets calling for death and, dest- or that death and destruction would happen were ill-advised. Karis Canal, thank you. We want to shift now to the DOJ's criminal investigation into efforts to overturn the 2020 election. A federal judge has ordered several former Donald Trump aides, including Mark Meadow, to testify before the grand jury, rejecting the former president's claims of executive privilege. Sinan's Caitlin Pollant has been following this for us. Good morning to you, Caitlin. So who are the witnesses and what happens now? Well, it's a whole group of witnesses that would be close to Donald Trump at the end of the administration. Mark Meadows is the top name clearly there, a person who is not wanted to provide answers to any investigators about what happened in the White House leading up to and on January 6th. But he's going to have to now. That's the bottom line here. The judge's ruling that we are learning about is that if these witnesses are called back to the grand jury or called for the first time to the grand jury and they don't want to answer or Donald Trump doesn't want them to answer a question, they have to. That is a different situation than what happened in the House investigation. Uh, and it is a situation that has, has this investigation has been moving towards it for several, uh, in many different iterations. The judge that has been overseeing this grand jury has now several times said witnesses called who are not going to answer questions, they have to answer. And in one swoop, the judge came in and made a ruling about several top people right around the president, including Mark Meadows, the chief of staff in the White House. All right. 
Caitlin, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Joining us now for more on all of this is CNN senior political commentator and the former Republican congressman from Illinois, Adam Kinzinger, who, as you know, served on the January 6th Select Committee. Also with us is former Trump White House press secretary and communications director, Stephanie Grisham. Thank you both for being here. Adam, I want to start with you. We heard from James Comer, who is the chairman of the House Oversight Committee yesterday, trying to essentially justify their their attempts to get Alvin Bragg to testify. This is what he told Jake Tapper. We believe this is a political stunt by Mr. Bragg. I don't believe that Bragg would be doing this if Donald Trump were not running for president. And that's something that we would like to ask Mr. Bragg as well. What do you make of his attempts to justify their demands of Bragg? Well, I mean, I think first off, you've got to wait to see if he's indicted and what that indictment <laughs> reads. They're, they're jumping the gun and just like, OK, any investigation of the former president has to be political. Well, maybe it isn't. Right. Maybe if you do read the indictment, it does come down and it's like, OK, well, why why are they indicting here? And I think that's a different story. But they're jumping the gun on this. And that's that's by purpose. I mean, because, this, you know, if this turns out to look like a pretty bad indictment, which it very well may. Uh, they will have already been kind of seeding the ground for saying this is a political prosecution. I- I'm disappointed at Mr. Comer because I know him. Um, I-, I never thought he would kind of be like full in on this kind of stuff because he's a fairly reasonable guy, but it's just too bad to see. He don't. He doesn't even know what's there, Adam. He doesn't know. If, and, and if right. there's anything there, if it's going to happen. I mean, Stephanie, he's the one who said, suggested last, last week that an indictment was going to come on Tuesday, right? And now he is telling reporters, well, I think the case has been dropped with no evidence. You know him, you worked with him. What is going on here? I mean, this is just typical him trying to deflect and get people to just pay attention to him. Honestly, this is what he does. He distracts people. You've said it best. He has no idea what's going on. So he's going to continue to play the victim and fundraise and take advantage of the people who really, really believe in him. Well, that's a sad thing, though. It's because he's raised a lot of money off of this, especially since last week when he said it's going to happen on Tuesday and now it has been dropped. He is continuing to raise money here and using people who, you know, believe him to to get their money. I mean, why why do they continue to believe him when he has no evidence of any of it, but his pockets are are getting heavier? You know, I mean, as somebody who... (laughs) worked for him and believed in him for a while. I think that there are still so many people out there who see him as a regular person. And uh, it's it's like a brainwashing. I can't even describe it to you. As I've been out of it for two years and I sit back and watch, I feel the same disbelief that I just heard in your voice. But there's so many people who believe that he really wants the best for this country and that aren't seeing, for whatever reason, that he really just wants the best for himself. I think it's also important to highlight, though, what we're seeing on the ground, because, you know, he Adam, he had this rally in Waco, Texas on Saturday. The former president did. There were a lot of people there. There was a lot of enthusiasm around it. So we hear, you know, a lot of Republicans, not a lot, but Republicans who predict, you know, Trump's influence over the party is fading. It's clearly still there. This was the message Trump had for his supporters in Waco. And 2024 is the final battle. That's going to be the big one. Our enemies are desperate to stop us because they know that we are the only ones who can stop them. All of the hatred, rage, and contempt the radical left has for you and your values and this nation has been very much directed on me. Either the deep state destroys America 
or we destroy the deep state. They're not coming after me. They're coming after you. And I'm just standing in their way. Does that kind of messaging work, though, with Republican voters still? Yeah, I mean, it does, it, it, it does work. And I think the thing to keep in mind, and I'll say this to my fellow you know, Republicans and Christians is beware of false prophets. And I mean that very sincerely, because what you have now is this kind of Trump as Jesus movement, I'm calling it, where it's like there are people comparing, you know, Jesus being crucified and rising again in three days to this allegation from Alvin Bragg. And I'm serious. This is like what's happening out there. And so, you know, it's very effective. I mean, half of the Texas delegation has already endorsed Donald Trump. I say this to all my friends that are like, hey, Trump is going to go away. Like there has been this constant hope for six years or longer that there's going to be some magical unicorn that comes down from heaven that's going to sweep Trump off the field so nobody has to personally attack him. Only like Liz Cheney, myself, and a few of us are the ones that ever have to speak out because something's going to come down and do it. It's not going to happen until you speak out. You know, Ron DeSantis is not going to roll in and magically save this without attacking Donald Trump. It's just the reality. And Man, the country and particularly my party is at real threat by this right now. But how much of it is, oh, Stephanie, the media? Because I was with a group of people who know Donald Trump very well this weekend, and they did not talk that much about Donald Trump um, and even what was happening in Waco. Kind of, they were like, eh, I didn't want to talk about that guy, whatever. They just kind of want him to go away. Are we doing this, or is it, you know... You, you get you get the point of my question. Are we? Is it us in the media? I mean, I think the short answer is no, because I, I think that because of the media and because of the people, just like Adam said, there's people like Adam or Liz or some people that are speaking out more and more. I think that that is why uh, the midterms happened the way that they did, and I think it's why he he is fading from. <clears throat> from people's minds or people are tired of his drama. People are tired of, you know, the baggage and the corruption that comes with him. So I think the media is doing a good job. And unfortunately, it's what he craves, too. And so as long as everybody's staying focused on reporting exactly what's going on with him without, you know, showing his larger than life persona all the time, I think it's a good thing. Mm. Yeah. All right. And he's still the front runner. Adam Kinzinger, Stephanie Grisham, thank you both very much for your time this morning. Thanks, guys. Thank so the man suing Gwyneth Paltrow for allegedly hitting him on the ski slope expected to take the stand today. We're going to bring you the highlights of the case and explain why the actress was asked about Taylor Swift. Are you good Hi. friends with Taylor Swift? No. You're not good friends with Taylor Swift? I would not say we're good friends. Okay, welcome back, everyone. So there you see him. There's Prince Harry. He is back in the UK, made a surprise appearance at London's High Court just this morning. It was for a preliminary hearing against the publisher of the Daily Mail. Duke of Sussex is one of seven high-profile individuals, including Sir Elton John, actress Elizabeth Hurley, who are accusing Associated Newspapers of phone tapping, hacking into financial and medical records, and other serious breaches of privacy. The media group has denied the allegations of illegal behavior by its staff. Also this morning, the court is going to resume in a Utah civil trial that involves the actress Gwyneth Paltrow in a 2016 ski collision. The man who is accusing Paltrow of crashing into him is expected to take the stand today. That's Terry Sanderson. He claims the accident left him with lasting injuries and brain damage. He's seeking more than $300,000 in damages as Paltrow is countersuing him for just $1. Sanderson's Chloe Loss joins us now. I mean, this trial has been 
bizarre so far, I think, <laughs> to the say the least. <laughs> that you've seen. What are we expecting today? Well, like you said, Terry Sanderson, the man who has been after Gwyneth Paltrow for the last seven years, claiming that he suffered four broken ribs and a concussion and brain trauma for years after this uh, ski collision. Now, remember, Gwen Gwyneth maintains that he barreled into her. We heard her testimony on Friday. Um, and so it doesn't it looks like the case has rested when it comes to Gwyneth. She won't be testifying anymore, although I think TikTok and social media would love Gwyneth to get back on the stand because there were so many viral moments on Friday. But we will hear from Gwyneth's children potentially later today or tomorrow. He originally sued her for $3 million, though, right? Yeah, 3.1. Yeah, and now it's 300 grand. But when you talk about these bizarre moments, you know, one of the ones she was asked about Taylor Swift at some point. This is what Gwyneth said in response. Are you good Hi. friends with Taylor Swift? No. You're not good friends with Taylor Swift? I would not say we're good friends. You've never given Miss Swift personal... Um, intimate gifts for Christmas. <laughs> why, why is that relevant? Well, okay, so it's sort of relevant. So uh, Taylor Swift sued uh, a DJ several years ago because she claimed that he, he, groped her. Grape, he groped her. And she sued him for a dollar. And it was a symbolic moment. And so what the lawyer for Terry Sanderson was saying was, did you get that idea to sue for a dollar from Taylor Swift? You had a gift guide on Goop, which is Gwyneth Paltrow's website, in which you created a Christmas bag for Taylor. You two are friends. This is how you got the idea. Look, I think a lot of people found the line of questioning from Terry's attorney to be a bit absurd at points, asking Gwyneth, how tall are you? What kind of ski outfits she has? Um, complimenting her at one point, but then on the other breath, calling her a liar. Um, and I think that some people also found it strange that Gwyneth appeared to be amused the whole time, kind of smiling and smirking. <laughs> it's all in her face. I mean, she's like, okay. I just think right? that, you know, if you thought Friday was weird, I think it's going to get weirder today. But it is serious stuff because Terry does allege that he had a lot of medical issues after this ski collision. It's all going to come down to who does the jury believe? Because there were no cameras there. There's just witnesses on both sides. And we'll see who wins. Obviously, so. she believes in her case, right? Because $300,000 for Taylor Swift would be a nuisance amount. For, well, is, yeah. for, for, for both of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's for like, both of them, it's, it's but like, for... It's like, you know, a dollar for us, right? So for her, it's like no big deal. So the principle, principle to take it this far and be so public, and Gwyneth clearly looks like she's not having the best time up there. You can imagine that this being so public that Gwyneth yeah. could have done without it. So clearly she truly believes that she is right. But Terry, we'll hear from him. Who knows what he'll say? Yeah. He's yeah. been waiting for seven years to get up there. Maybe a win. We'll we know see. you're going to be watching, so I will. we'll see what the highlights are. Chloe, thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks Chloe. Appreciate it. Uh, this just in, all flights canceled at Munich Airport is a massive strike by Germany's transport workers. That strike is putting uh, all travel to a halt. All these protests around the world. I know, it's a remarkable moment on the international stage. We're also closely watching what is happening in Israel. You were looking at a massive crowd protest in Jerusalem. All of, why all of these people, this is a shot from overhead, as you can see just how large these protests are why those people are taking to the streets. What's the response going to be from the White House? We'll talk about that next. All right, this morning, as you can see, there are mass protests underway in several different countries for several different reasons. We're tracking all of them. In Israel, it is a full-blown political crisis that you are waking up to this morning that's unfolding over the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu's proposed judicial overhaul 
Workers at airports, malls, hospitals, even McDonald's, all striking this morning. In France, hundreds are protesting outside of the Louvre over the government's move to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64. Those have only continued to intensify. They've been happening for almost two weeks now. In Germany, also more than 400,000 transport workers are striking, basically bringing the transportation across that country to a standstill. The last time we checked, all flights have been canceled at Munich's airport. Joining us now is Ian Brummer, president of the Eurasia Group and author of The Power of Crisis. Hey, good morning. It's good to see you. Good to be with you know, this has a sort of retro feel to it, you know, the, the great protests of the 70s that were happening around the world. But first up, we'll, we'll get to that. But uh, what, what will Netanyahu do? You think he's going to have to back off on this? Well, they're supposed to give a speech uh, that hasn't happened yet. Um, and I think the reason for the delay is he's trying to ensure that all of his ministers are going to stick with his government if he suspends the judicial reform. At this point, it looks like that's what he's going to do. Critically, the judicial minister, who was the pen on this reform, he's the mastermind behind it, has said that he's going to stick with Netanyahu if they decide to suspend. The national security minister, far right wing, has not. Uh, earlier, he'd say he'd try to bring down the government uh, if they decided not to go ahead with it. I suspect that Bibi right now is working that national security minister very, very hard. This is unprecedented in terms of the economic and security implications for Israel itself since they've been an independent state. But you think he puts it on ice temporarily? I, th I think if you made me bet right now, you're asking me, that, that's where I would go, yeah. yeah. The White House. Netanyahu has been invited to speak virtually at a democracy and appear virtually at the democracy summit that they're holding. Critics of this say that if they continue with it, it is basically putting Israel on the path toward authoritarianism because it effectively removes the checks on the power, on the balances of power there. What does the White House do here? Because we've seen them say they're concerned about what's happening, but... Does Biden need to come out and speak forcefully about this? How does he navigate this? I think in a few hours, assuming there's a suspension, Biden's able to express his solidarity with the democracy of Israel, the people of Israel, and be glad that Bibi decided to back off of it. That's where I hope we are going right now. But, I mean, look, if you want to look at the Middle East, we know that there aren't a lot of democracies uh, right now in the region. And the big story out of the Middle East over the last months, of course, was that Iran and Saudi Arabia were in Beijing doing a peace deal. That's very different than the previous peace deal under the Trump administration, which was Israel and the UAE and Bahrain, the Abraham Accords. This, is, this feels like a very, very different Middle East than what we were looking at five years ago, 10 years ago. The United States is not playing as much of a role. So I don't think Biden really wants to, to scupper, that if, if he can avoid it, and I think he can probably avoid it. So you think Netanyahu still speaks at that democracy summit that they're hosting? Let's see what happens in the course of the next six, 12 hours. I'm not sure Bibi's even going to be there, right? I mean, he only has an eight-seat majority uh, in the Knesset. Uh, it's possible, given what we're seeing with these demonstrations, they, they may continue. He can suspend, and the people may just say, you know what, we've just had enough of this government. We, we don't like the danger to democracy. Israel's less than 10 million people. You've had 500,000 people on the streets. You have a general strike called by a union with 800,000 members. This is like 25% of the entire Israeli workforce you're talking about here. So you've never seen anything like this. The, the consul general here in New York just tendered his resignation hours ago. The minister of defense was sacked after coming out in opposition. The uh, head of the Tel Aviv police forces was seen demonstrating with the protesters yesterday. Lots of members of the Israeli military are saying, we refuse to serve this is a country, remember, where you have mandatory service, and it's an enormously patriotic thing to do, men and women in the country, saying they won't serve because what uh, Netanyahu is trying to push through with his government right now. Well, let's broaden this out a little bit. I mean, it's, sure. look, it's not just Israel, right? You've got Germany, you've got France, you've got uh, all over 
I'm wondering, if, what does this mean for us here at home, especially because I would imagine that China and Russia, that's something that they're happy to see. Uh, they're happy to see uh, democracies weakening. They're happy to see anti-establishment sentiment making Western governments say we don't have the model for the world. Now, there's a really big difference between a country like the United States, Mexico, Brazil, where there are strong anti-democracy sentiment that gets beaten down because the institutions ultimately are really resilient, whether it's January 6th in the United States or January 8th in Brazil. Uh, in a country like Hungary or a country like Turkey, where you've had anti-democracy uh, leaders that have been able to literally break institutions, and you can't describe those countries as full democracies anymore. The real question with Israel is which of those two camps Israel's in, and I suspect we will find that it is strongly in the former camp. Yeah. One other thing we wanted to get your perspective on is Putin saying they are going to deploy tactical nuclear weapons to neighboring Belarus. Do you think he's bluffing? And if he's not, what's the significance of that? Uh, irrespective of whether he's blustering or not, uh, he is uh, rattling nuclear sabers yet again after being told by the Chinese repeatedly, we don't want you to do that. So interesting that comes... Which he did after she left. After she left. Um, you know, Belarus only nominally sovereign as a country. It's not like President Lukashenko has any choice if Putin says he's going to put them there. This is, in principle, a response to the decision of the U.S. and U.K. to send depleted uranium shells to Ukraine to be used in, in battle against the Russians. Having said all of that, uh, the problem here is, for the Americans, is that no matter where the Ukraine war goes, the fight that the West has with Russia is deep, it's abiding. This yeah. is a rogue state that is, has massive nuclear weapons. They're not in the start negotiations. There's no arms control with the Americans anymore. There's no communications happening at a high level. So God forbid you have mistakes and accidents as we have historically, how are you going to respond to them? That's really, that's really the crux of it. I think of that's this. the that real day. That's, that's what it, the right? story yeah. is really about, the Belarus story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's a little communication. Sure. Thanks, Ian. Always a pleasure. Good yeah. to see you. Uh, madness, indeed. Upset after upset after upset. After upset after upset. Final four is set. And it just might be the most random in NCAA history. Speaking of randoms, <laughs> Harry Enton is that That was the fake laugh if I've ever heard. No, that's not fake. <laughs> Harry on the other side of the break. Thank you. That was great. He's looking for someone. Masoud got to put it up. As I crunch the peppermint I'm eating right now. And then there were four for FAU, Miami, and San Diego State. This was history in the making. It is the first time those schools have made the NCAA men's basketball final four. UConn, of course, is no stranger to the stage in the dance and is now effectively the team to beat. Right, Caitlin? Not. <laughs> I'm telling you. It was not a good Friday night for me. Luckily, I went to the Taylor Swift concert after Alabama lost, so it helped me, like, deal with the pain. Okay, no one Roll seeds, tie. though, no two seeds, and no three seeds are in the Final Four. This is so bizarre. This is so random. This morning's number is four because it is the first time ever all Final Four seeds were four or worse. And, you know, just giving an understanding of how random this is, the pre-20 pre brackets that had these teams in the Final Four, <laughs> less than 10% 
less than 5%, only about 1% for FAU, SDSU, just 1.2%, less than 40, 40 brackets out of 20 million on ESPN had all four of these seeds going. You know, you pointed out UConn's the team to beat. The chance of winning the title right now, UConn at 43%, but still less than a 50% chance of winning. Why is UConn the favorite? I think this gives you an understanding. One first four 20 games by 15 plus points. UConn is one of them. Gonzaga 2021, UConn 2004. Those are the only ones in the 2000s. FAU, if they were able to pull it off, the worst seeds to win the 20, they're a nine seed. They would be the first ever nine seed ever to win win it all. So this has been random. It's been crazy. And I don't know what's going to happen because the fact is the math is out the window. Also, I feel like if you've never seen uh, a Final Four game or been to one, this is the time to go because, yes. like, the tickets are probably going to be less expensive now, right? Maybe so, because these, but but maybe it's more expensive because these schools have never been there. They would want to watch their teams. Yeah. I know. We've been planning to go. My dad and I were talking about how expensive tickets were, what we were going to do, and now it's like, well, guess we <laughs> save some money. Just well, enjoy women, it. LSU women, they're still there. <laughs> yes, yes. There you go, Don. Yeah. yeah, Iowa. We had the women's Iowa team, amazing game yesterday. Mm. All, right, All right, everybody. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you, Harry. We're so glad you watched. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Harry. We'll see you Thanks, all of you. CNN Newsroom starts right after this break. <laughs> that is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.